Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 26, 2015. This is episode 1599 of the Survival Podcast, which means we're about to cross another monumentous thing, right? We're going to go up to 1600. That just sounds cool. And something's going to happen in the 1600s that has nothing to do with the history segment. It has to do with the calculation I've made. I'll tell you more about it when we get there. Anyway, for now, let's go ahead and enjoy our show today. And, of course, it is not just 1599. It is not just June 26, 2015. You know what day it is. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, and for years, Friday, Friday, Friday meant your calls to me. Now, Friday, Friday, Friday is all about the Monster Expert Council show. Uh, I have 12 of the 13 council members checking in with us today. And the 13th, I have an email out to them to make sure there's not some kind of technical mumbo-jumbo mess up there. Um, and we might get him in before the end of production today. So we might have a full, uh, a full uh, what do you call it? Like the, I want to say batting cage. But I don't have full dugout for you guys today of 13 expert council members. Uh, with that, before I get to your questions on the expert council, let's take care of our housekeeping. First item is always, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year being 1599, because the episode is 1599. As always, the awesome Alex Shrugged has an incredible lineup for us today. I have the first lodge of the Freemasons and the, the Freemasons and the power of a leaderless organization. I have the King of Sweden is out of here, and I also have. John Alden is born, one-third of a love triangle. You can read the ones I'm not going to read today for yourself at tspwiki.com for the year 1599. There will be a link in today's show notes, as always. And once again, I'd like to thank the awesome Alex Shrug who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. And please realize, you guys can get over to TSP Wiki anytime you want to. It's just like Wikipedia, except just for TSP. Everything about sustainability, self-sufficiency, etc., the tactical, the practical, all of it's there. Anybody can be an editor. We even have videos that show you how to do it if you say, well, I don't know how. Be bold, get in, and be part of the TSP Wiki team. It's uh, just another extension of our awesome community, and it is literally an encyclopedia of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. But back to our segment of the day. The first lodge of the Freemasons and the power of leaderless organizations. Mary's Chapel in Edinburgh is listed as the first Freemason lodge, or at least it is listed as number one. No doubt lodges existed prior to this time, but Mary's Chapel is the first lodge that can be reasonably documented through its own minutes and accepted by the Freemasons themselves. This is also the time of the first recorded initiate being welcomed into the Freemasons, but currently the Freemasons are a loose association. One cannot call it multinational yet. Nothing approaching the Freemason, modern Freemason, will come together until the 1700s. Mary's Chapel exists today, but the original building was demolished in the 1800s to make room for the South Edinburgh Bridge. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, let's pull out our dog-eared copies of the Da Vinci Code and the last sim lost symbol by Dan Brown. 
These are not history books, however. James Rowland's novels are totally real. All kidding aside, the people get the people get suspicious of private groups that want to remain private. Christianity began as a secret organization. I'm Jewish, so I asked my mother-in-law if there was some secret Jewish handshake or trap door she's going to tell me about before she dies. Apparently not. The Church of Latter-day Saints, Alcoholics Anonymous, and the Vatican have elements they keep private. As long as they are not burning people at the stake, I'm going to mind my own business. Large multinational organizations need, need not be driven by a fiendish plan. In Austin, Texas, there's over 425 Alcoholics Anonymous meetings every week. The central office sells books, answers phone, and prints a schedule of meetings. If a complaint comes in about a meeting, the meeting is dropped from the schedule. That's all the central control they exercise, and it is a worldwide organization. They see the work that needs doing, and they do it, mostly out of gratitude for a life saved or improved, no conspiracy required. Yeah, I'm not going to get into whether or not you know the Freemasons are a conspiracy, but if they are, it's the worst kept conspiracy in history. They, this is the secret organization that now advertises for members. Anyway, though, there are elements of meetings that are secret uh, with the Masons, and... But what I want to talk about actually is the concept of leaderless organizations for a minute. I am on the verge of creating two of them, and I'm going to have no control over them, and nobody will. And they won't even have as much control as Alcoholics Anonymous has over them. And we're going to put them out there, and we're going to see what happens, and if they fail, big whoop. I'm out a few hundred bucks for setting up the site and providing the hosting and doing some programming and stuff like that. And I might create more of them. I might create 20 of them. I might create 50 of them. If I create 50 and two become really successful, it's worth the effort. Here's why I think that leaderless associations have the most ability to have the greatest influence on society as a whole. There's nothing to attack. What are you going to attack? And I think that is the concept of virtual nations. And will a virtual nation rise out of one of these? I don't know. That's not really the goal, but if it happens, it happens. I think we are heading toward a time in society where we will have people beginning to voluntarily associate at levels that are just unmanageable. Um, I'm really enjoying reading a new book that was recommended by Toby Hemingway. It's called The Art of Not Being Governed. And I think that is uh, what we're evolving to technologically, is to start telling government, you know, unless we need you for something, you just go on about your way. Now, they don't want to go away. But it is leaderless organizations that make them go away because they're, they're impossible to get your arms around. And they're the only way I think we can become free of what's called the iron law of bureaucracy. What the iron law states is that, and this is from uh, Pornell, so Pornell's iron law of bureaucracy, basically the, the paraphrased version is in any organization, you're going to have two groups of people, people committed to the organization and people committed to the mission. The missions go out and see to the mission, while the people with central control see to the organization. And in time, they become the controllers of the organization. They control promotions, they control policy, they control everything, and the people seeing to the mission end up completely written off. And eventually the organization becomes entirely too top-heavy, and the mission is no longer important. The organization itself becomes what's important. We've seen this with the Boy Scouts of America. There's not a, there's not a troop leader out there that's got a brain anyway that thinks it's unkind for one scout to squirt another scout with a squirt gun out of frickin' swimming pool. But the central authority says so. So, I think it's time to create as many leaderless organizations as possible, except the fact that many of them will fail, and except the fact that when the right one comes along and people decide it's worthy, it will turn into something really great. This is how we grow trees. 
with the stun method from Mark Shepard. You plant a thousand and you hope at the end of a five year cycle that 50 to 100 have become what you're looking for. Let's plant a hundred leaderless organizations and if we can create two or three that can change the world, I think that's worth doing. And I think that it's individual groups making decisions for themselves autonomously that's necessary to make change at this point. The government, the government's bought and paid for, folks. It really, really is. I had a Facebook post out today about that. If you want to know more, go to the survivalpodcast.com Facebook page or go to the website and click on our Facebook link. And uh, right at the top, if you see this episode on my Facebook page at the time you're reading this, just look one underneath it and you'll see uh, a post about how much money uh, Republican leadership took in in order to vote for fast-tracking the trade agreement and give Obama complete authority over it. Uh, but the last election was really important. I won't give you any details. If you want to know, you can read the article there. I will also have a link to it in today's show notes. I'd love to hear your comments on that, especially if you're one of the people that told me how important it was that I vote in the last election when I chose not to. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you real quick before I get to your first question of the day about the uh, uh, Member Support Brigade. The Member Support Brigade is a program that I built to make this show sustainable, to make this show profitable. It's where you say, hey, you know what, Jack? I think your show's worth 20 cents an episode, so I'm going to join because it's worth 20 cents an episode alone. And I say, you know what, thank you. And in return, I will get you so many discounts that your membership will pay for itself and be profitable. And if you're military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, uh, active duty or prior service, any of those things, I'll give you an even bigger discount on the service itself. Just email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line. You log in, you see all these great discounts, like the one I just got you guys uh, for any seeds for 20% off all orders. And you use the discounts and your membership pays for itself. So consider joining because if you're buying the stuff that we talk about here, again, from guns to gardens and everything in between, your membership will pay for itself on an annual basis. Learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. With that, let's get to your, your uh, first question of the day. This one I have is for Nick Ferguson. It's one that interests me, except I don't like the way Billy Goats stink, honestly. Um, but it comes from a listener called Tom. Tom says, Nick, I know you have goats. I've been considering upping our meat production and thinking about doing goats or sheep like dorpers. What advice would you give for setting up goats on a homestead? We have about two and a half acres, decent but not great grass. My climate is more like Jack's than yours, south central Oklahoma. We have a perimeter fence, five foot chain link, likely they can climb that. How do I do this without regretting it? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about goats myself, and I'm like, in the end, I'm going to hate myself. So, Nick, what say you? How can, how can we do goats, get some meat production out of them, and not end up completely hating ourselves for doing it? This is a great question. Thanks, Tom. Um, okay. Two and a half acres is not very much space for sheep and goats. You're going to really run into some overgrazing issues. And if you want to mitigate that, if you are dead set on, on sheep or goats, um, I'm going to answer this question like that for now. So let's assume that we must put sheep or goats on this property. Um, you're going to have to set up a, a paddock system so that you can put them in a maybe a quarter of an acre at a time to rotate them so that they don't overgraze a certain area. You're going to have to have an, 
one of those areas with their shelter in it um, and a hay feeder. And they're going to need at least a three-sided structure with the hay feeder inside it. And you're going to want a um, a waterproof, rodent-proof, probably a metal trash can to hold their feed because you're going to have to import feed. There's no way around this. You're going to have to bring in hay. You're going to have to bring in things like alfalfa pellets or um, or a sweet feed, some kind of feed for the goats or sheep because you're probably not going to have enough grazing. Um, and especially in the winter, you're going to have to bring in hay. So <clears throat> you're, um, you're going to have moderate to high infrastructure costs. You're going to have to upgrade your fencing. So that chain link fence is perfect, but you're going to have to put in some electric. You're going to want to put in electric, um, probably about four inches off of the ground around the whole perimeter fence. You're going to want to, you're going to need, absolutely, absolutely need to have electric, uh, one strand of electric at their rub height. So if you look at their shoulders and you, come down just uh, about a, a tenth of their the length of their leg down from their shoulder where it hinges. That is the height that you're going to need to set that electric. And what this is going to do is it's going to prevent them from rubbing on your fence and destroying it because they will destroy it. If you have it at that height, it's pretty much at nose height, and It'll train them to not mess with your fence, and you'll probably want to have another strand at the very top so that if they – I don't know what your surrounding area is like, but if you have any branches hanging over, they're going to want to jump up on your fence and reach up over it. And if they learn that they can, then they might be tempted to actually try and climb it or jump the whole fence altogether. It depends on what you get, how light-bodied they are. Um, there's a lot of variables here, but I would go with – three or four strands of electric, one at the very bottom on the inside so they don't push under it, one at their rub height, shoulder height, nose height area, and then one at the top on the inside. And I would probably put one at about three inches, two inches to three inches off the ground on the outside to prevent any coyotes or neighborhood or wild dogs from getting into your area. Now you're going to have to keep that trimmed back and it's going to be a lot of maintenance to keep it working right, um, but that's going to be critical to keeping them where you want them. So if we're doing goats and sheep, you're going to have your pasture, you're going to have imported feed, and this is going to be high food cost. Your housing, you're going to need the fence upgrade. It's going to be medium to high infrastructure cost. The drawbacks, you're probably only going to be able to keep about two adult animals. So you're either going to be able to keep two females and you're going to have to get them bred every year, which is a real pain. Or you can keep one male and one female, which is also going to be a pain because then you're going to get a single or twins with most sheep or goats. You're going to get a single or twins, and that is not very much meat yield. You're going to have to have that sacrificial mulch yard, and you're going to have to clean that out multiple times a year, or else you're going to have disease issues. Um, another issue with the goats and sheep is baby goats and sheep are adorable. It is going to be really hard for you or your family to be okay with turning that little baby goat 
or sheep into meat. Um, your feed storage and constant import of feed is going to be an issue, and you're going to have a low meat yield per acre with, with what you're describing. So if I have not convinced you already to not go with goats or sheep, I don't know what your situation is, what you're doing with birds or rabbits, but if I only had two and a half acres, I would be planting some support trees that will feed my birds or rabbits. Um, so let's let's go over birds real quick. So you've got food. So you'd have the pasture mix. You'd still want to put some uh, some paddocks in there so that you can shift them around. Two and a half acres. You could probably have a laying flock of of ten or twelve birds on two and a half acres and not run into any problems with just letting them go at it. Um, but I'd still shift them around. Uh, they'll eat insects. It's a medium food cost. Um, their housing for ducks, it's going to be really low. Chickens, it's going to be medium. Um, the birds' housing is really cheap. Um, ducks, if you get Muscovies, Muscovies are pretty much like little bitty cows. They're veal. They don't quack. Um, if you keep their wings clipped, they're not going to go anywhere. Uh, man, I would I would really push you more towards Muscovies for meat and some ducks for eggs or chickens for eggs. Um, benefits. It's a small carcass, easy to butcher. You're not going to be as attached to the animals when it's time to butcher. You can make timely harvests. So you can leave the animals alive and only harvest when you need the meat. Um, you get eggs as a yield. And also you can sell excess animals. Um, this is going to be more of the medium meat yield. Now let's cover rabbits real quick. You got the food. You can use a lawnmower with a bagger and cut your forage with your two and a half acres. You just run through with your lawnmower. When you're done, toss a kiddie pool on top of it and a sandbag to keep it protected from the rain. And you just dump your cut forage in a five-gallon bucket and then take it and feed your animals. It's almost free to feed them like that. Um, you'd still want to give them some pellets or whatever your supplemental feed is going to be just to make sure they're getting a well-rounded diet and, of course, minerals. But, I mean, you're almost getting free food here. The housing, it's high upfront housing cost. You want to get good cages. Uh, I have rabbits. I have chickens. I have ducks. I have dairy goats. I have a dairy cow. I have, a, I have pigs. I've got all these animals and the rabbits are the highest upfront cost. The nice thing, it's a small footprint, and you have a high yield for your housing area. Now, the benefits of the rabbits are super easy butchering. I mean, when it comes to <laughs> butchering animals, rabbits are, in my opinion, the quickest and easiest thing to butcher. Um, they breed like rabbits. They breed like crazy, so you can get a lot of them. You can sell, you can keep a couple breeders of some dwarfs to sell them as pets. Excess yield is dog food. They're a perfect garden manure and they're a high meat yield. So take that, all that information, you make the decision of what makes sense for you, for your situation. But I would, if you were my client, I would steer you away from goats or sheep. I would steer you towards chickens or ducks or rabbits. And I'd lean more towards Muscovy ducks or rabbits. So I hope that helps. 
For more information on me, you can go to permacultureclassroom.com. Um, I love these kinds of questions. Keep them coming, guys, and have a great week. Great stuff from Nick Ferguson. I'll add a couple of my own thoughts as a, a duck keeper here. Um, they are very easy to take care of. I have three acres. Your land is a lot like mine. I'm running 100 ducks. I do have to feed them significantly for that, but with a three-paddock shift system, uh, they get a lot of their food off the land, and they are absolutely 100% um, eating less food now than they did in the spring. Um, they, I would say we have 30% to 40% more ducks than we had in the early spring, and they're eating uh, uh, close to the same amount of feed. So you could just do the reverse math and say we're eating 30 to 40% less feed. We've also moved them up to a higher protein feed, and uh, even though they're adults, and the egg yield just banged up immediately. The egg size banged up immediately. So, and they, if you have muscovies, like Nick said, they will take care of the babies. That's what Dorothy and I were talking yesterday and said the, the muscovies are the most valuable workers we have on the property. Right now, there's five of them sitting on eggs. And when the babies hatch, they don't care that they're not all going to be Muscovy ducks. They're going to take care of them. So the ducks are a good meat yield. We did learn at Permaethos that plucking them with typical chicken pluckers doesn't work real well. So you're, if you're going to do ducks, I'm going to warn you, you either need to find a good processor, get really good at doing it yourself, find some specialized equipment to do it with, or just skin them. And I hate doing that to a degree because the duck skin is so wonderful. But what you end up with still is really great quality meat. And what you could do if you have a plucker for your chickens and you don't want to jack around with all the pin feathers and all, go ahead and scald them, go ahead and pluck them, leave the pin feathers in, you can still render all that great duck fat. And it'll just you won't have really nice crouton duck skin croutons because you'll have pin feathers in them. But when you pull them out and separate your fat, you still get all the wonderful fat, and you, that is just way too valuable to let go if there's any way around it. I would also say consider quail. Quail is something we're going to do to have consistent meat available all the time. And Brad Davies and I, Moon Valley Prepper, are working right now intellectually at this point on developing probably what is going to become the coolest system for quail you've ever seen. Imagine a system that works in your garage in suburbia and works equally well on a small homestead like mine. Imagine a system where you can just move the quail from a sheltered area with an air conditioner or a heater out on the grass and back in as easy as one, two, three. Imagine a system where when the quail are in the confined space, there's a little pan that catches all their poop. And when the quail go back outside, the pan becomes a roof to keep them shaded and dry. Imagine that system if you can. We've already imagined it. We're working on it. That will come to you in the future. By the way, Nick Ferguson, we, we booked him next week because I'm going on vacation at the end of next week. So we have three interviews next week uh, leading up to my vacation. And Nick's going to be on to talk about the goat thing in far more detail, how to raise goats without hating yourself. Next question comes up. Eric Strauss has a question. Uh, this comes from, I don't have the listener down, so I don't remember who it was now. Uh, but the person that asked the question had this. What's the deal with lacto-fermentation and how do you do it? In a recent show with Ben Hewitt, Jack and Ben both hailed this technique. How exactly does this work? What does it taste like? 
What do I do it? How do I do it? And what do I do it to? Erica, what say you? Hey, Jack, this is Erica calling in to talk lacto-fermentation, one of my favorite topics. So let's start at the beginning and talk just a little bit about how traditional methods of food preservation work in general, because it's all about setting up the right environment and then letting microbes take over. This can be a little weird to folks who are trained to think of bacteria as germs, as something bad that just makes you sick or makes your kid's nose run for half the year. But you have to get over your bacteria phobia if If you're going to ferment because this traditional method of food preservation is a cooperative arrangement with these critters that are way too tiny for us to see. But when we set up the right environment for these beneficial strains of bacteria or yeast or even mold to do their work, they turn highly perishable fresh foods like cabbage or grapes or milk into long lasting and delicious preserved foods like sauerkraut or wine or cheese. So again, get over your bacteria phobia because this is all about getting cooperative with microbes. One of the most versatile of the traditional methods of food preservation is called lacto-fermentation. The lacto here is important. It refers to lactobacillus, which you've probably heard of. It's the most famous of a family of bacteria, the lactic acid bacteria. You'll hear lactobacillus in ads for like probiotic yogurt and that kind of stuff. The lactic acid bacteria are used in the preservation of everything from pickles to summer sausage to miso to yogurt. But today I'm going to focus on vegetable ferments. These ferments, think sauerkraut, kimchi, dilly beans, kosher dill pickles, they typically have a tangy flavor, but they aren't as puckery, sour uh, as vinegar pickled equivalent foods would be. The flavor is more complex and more mellow. And because this is a living ferment, it tends to change over time, getting a little more tangy as the ferment ages. Lacto-fermented vegetables are also an incredible source of gut-friendly probiotic bacteria. Entire books and websites are dedicated to the health benefits of traditionally fermented foods. But in general, just know that there's evidence that a diet rich in fermented foods improves intestinal health and digestion, improves immunity, and reduces allergy symptoms. And then the action of the lactic acid bacteria itself on the raw vegetables makes those vegetables more easily digestible. So you actually absorb more of the vitamins and the good stuff from the veggies. The lactic acid bacteria that makes all this goodness possible have two very important qualities that make them especially useful for food preservation. The first is that they rapidly convert sugar into lactic acid. This means that these little bacteria will happily chomp down on the digestible carbohydrates and vegetables and then excrete lactic acid. As the lactic acid level increases, the pH of the food drops, getting more acidic. Nowadays, we think of pickling as something done by adding vinegar to lower the pH of a food like a vegetable, but the lactic acid bacteria have been lowering the pH of vegetables naturally since pretty much forever. So you can think of lacto-fermentation as nature's pickling. It's a vinegar-free pickling method. The second thing that's so useful about the lactic acid bacteria is that they are far more salt tolerant than most bacteria. This means that we as the designers of the fermentation can set up an environment where the lactic acid bacteria will be more likely to thrive and outcompete non-desirable bacteria simply by adding the right amount of salt to the ferment. So looking at this practically, the goal is to set up an environment where the lactic acid bacteria have access to complex sugars in raw vegetables and make that environment just a little bit salty to give those bacteria a leg up on competing non-desired microbes.
And then there's one more thing we can do to make sure we're doing everything possible to encourage our friendly helper bacteria. The lactic acid bacteria are anaerobic. That means that they do not play well with oxygen at all. So we need to keep our fermenting food away from oxygen. The most common way to do this is to weight down the fermenting food to keep it under a salt brine. I'll talk about specific techniques for this in a minute. But for now, just know that if you do not protect your lacto-ferment from oxygen, what will happen is that oxygen-loving mold and wild yeast will colonize your ferment. And trust me when I say you do not want that to happen. It compromises the flavor and sometimes even the safety of the ferment. So now you have a general idea of how lacto-fermentation works. Let's get into some specifics. You want to use vegetables that are at their peak, freshly harvested and in perfect shape. Do not use vegetables that have any signs of decay. Remember, that decay means that some other microbe, some spoilage microbe that we don't want, already has a toehold on your product. You want to use pure, non-iodized salt. You can use kosher salt, pickling salt, or sea salt, but the volume of salt you will need will vary based on the fineness of the grains of salt. You want to ferment in a non-reactive, non-plastic container. So stay away from metal. And uh, plastic gets micro scratches, which can harbor bacteria. So that's why I don't like that for fermentation. Uh, you can get one of the traditional ceramic fermentation crocks, but they're very expensive. And I'm frankly just too cheap to buy them. So I ferment mostly in glass mason jars, which work just fine. You want your fermentation vessel to be scrupulously clean. So wash your jar or your crock with hot soapy water, rinse it really well, but do avoid using any kind of antimicrobial agent like bleach. Remember, we do want to encourage bacteria, but just the right kind. Similarly, if you live somewhere where your water is chlorinated or otherwise treated to kill off microbes, you're going to want to filter your water before you use it or just go get some bottled water. For any vegetable ferment, the basic steps are to prepare your vegetable by cutting it into uniform pieces so the lactic acid bacteria can rapidly get to work turning all those sugars into lactic acid. And then if the vegetable is something with enough moisture that it will produce its own brine, like cabbage, for example, you toss the vegetable with salt and any spices you like to season it and then pack the vegetable into your perfectly clean jar or crock and then press down until the natural juices of that vegetable form a brine over the vegetable. If the vegetable you're fermenting won't make a brine naturally or is better fermented whole like green beans or cucumbers, then you make a saltwater brine instead. You arrange the vegetable in your jar with any seasonings or spices you like, and then you pour the brine over. So the basic ratio for a self-brining vegetable, again like cabbage, is 45 grams of salt for each five pounds of prepared vegetable. That works out to be about three tablespoons of fine sea salt or about five tablespoons of big fluffy kosher salt for every five pounds of vegetable. The basic brine ratio for a brine that you pour over your whole vegetables is 30 grams of salt per quart of water. That's about two tablespoons of fine sea salt or three tablespoons of kosher salt. And you can play with the brine level a little bit depending on what you're fermenting, but these rules of thumb will get you started. 
Then all that's left to do is to keep the oxygen away from your ferment. There are a lot of fancy tools out there that you can buy with airlocks and water moats and that kind of stuff that will help you with this. Or you can just weigh down your ferment. That's how it's been done traditionally for millennia. Ziploc bags filled with brine are a very effective weight because they spread out and press down uniformly across the entire surface of the ferment. But I'm personally concerned about the acidic environment of a ferment leaching chemicals out of plastic. So I stay away from that. I use ceramic pie weights inside of a mesh bag, and I use that to weight down most of my ferments. This works well because like the plastic bag filled with brine, the pie weights kind of spread out and hold everything down uniformly so you don't get little bits of the ferment floating up to the surface of the brine. So there's a lot of ways to keep your ferment well under the brine. Just make sure that whatever method you use really presses down on that fermented vegetable and doesn't let anything float up to the surface where it could be exposed to the oxygen. So from here, you just turn the job over to those lactic acid bacteria. They're naturally occurring on all fresh vegetables, so you don't have to inoculate your ferment or anything. Some people do add whey to their vegetable ferments just to jumpstart the growth of that lactic acid bacteria, but this isn't necessary. The beneficial bacteria will grow out and colonize your ferment naturally as long as you've got the salinity right. Your ferment is going to do best at room temperature, somewhere between 68 to 72 degrees is ideal, but a few degrees warmer or cooler isn't going to ruin anything. And then your ferment is done, honestly, when it tastes right. Uh, I wish I could give you a better guideline for how long a ferment will take, but I've had sauerkraut in the fall on my counter for four months and a hot pepper mash on my counter in the summer for two days and both achieved the flavor and the keeping qualities I was looking for. There are just so many variables. Remember, this is a living ferment we're dealing with. So salinity, the size of the vegetable being fermented, the ambient temperature, and many more factors will play into how long your ferment is going to take to get fully fermented. Well, I love this stuff. I could talk about lacto-fermentation for hours, but my time is way up, so i got to leave it here for now. If you have any questions and you leave a comment, I'll do my best to answer them. Otherwise, you can come visit me anytime at nwedible.com. Jack, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk lacto-fermentation, and I will talk to you guys next week. Great stuff from Erica, and when this question came in, I was thinking, I make this salsa that I found on a blog a long time ago, and... I wonder if that was Erica's blog. And so I went to Erica's blog and I searched it for Lacto and I found this article from quite a few years ago, actually, on Lacto Fermented Salsa. This was all the way back from 2011 and son of a gun, it's her salsa. This stuff is awesome. Um, it is really, really good stuff. So I put a link in today's show notes. You'll see the links for all the Expert Council's websites. But below that, you'll see like links they've sent in or links I've selected for them. And you can find out how to make her lacto-fermented uh, salsa. It's awesome. Give it a shot. If you're not sure what to do first for a lacto-ferment, go ahead and do that. Uh, the next question comes in for uh, Michael Jordan. This is from James and Marie. He says, my wife and I are looking into buying a flow hive and wondering... What are the possible upsides and downsides of getting a flow hive? My wife and I live in a valley in south of Portland, Oregon, on a third-acre property in town. Um, I have my own opinions of the flow hive. Michael's weighed in on it before, but I'll tell you what. I have gotten probably 
10 emails for Michael on this question. This just happened to be the one that I selected. So clearly there's still a lot of questions out there about the Flow Hive. Um, though I have my opinions, I am not the bee whisperer. Here is the man himself, the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan, on the ins and outs, ups and downs, good and bad of the Flow Hive uh, system. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company, with a question from James and Marie from Portland, Oregon, on the ups and downs of getting a flow hive. That after looking at their Indigo site, they have over 30 million viewers and have gotten 17,000% of their funding. What do you think about it? Is it a good place for us to start? Okay, the flow hive. What a great idea. Getting honey with a turn of a knob. It was first patented December 3rd, 1940, by J.B. Guerrera, patent number US2223561, and used metal frame cells at the time, and the same gear design shown now by Stuart and Cedar Anderson that makes up the flow hive. The drip system has been around now for 75 years. It is not a new idea but has been made cheaper by the use of 3D printing. The system is getting cheaper as time moves on and beekeeping changes. <clears throat> there are a few other hives that use the drip system, like the Flow Hive, the Flow Hive actually being number four in the market. There is the Herb Hive that uses electronic wire to uncap 3D printed frames when you pull them out and turn them over. Phillips made a beehive that mounted on the window of your home and you just pulled the cord to get the honey out of hive. Right now in India, there's a company making a compressed extractor of honey that uh, you just push a button and it uh, blows the bees out of the hive, compressing the comb, allowing you to get a ball of wax as well as honey. So they're going a different route. I love the PR the flow hive has gotten. It has gotten millions of people into beekeeping. Uh, we were losing beekeepers by astronomical numbers, and we weren't getting new beekeepers. And beaks are hard to come by. And this just boosted up the population. So I'm, I'm very happy on that. Now, is it better for the bees? Well, there's many takes on it. I'm not going to tell you. I'm only going to tell you what I think of, of the beehive. You know, bees live everywhere. They live in cardboard boxes, the chimney of your home, the mailbox or trash can outside. They'll even live in car tires or even wings of jet planes traveling from country to country still. So it's not a matter, is it a better home for the bees? But can you use it for your management skill set? The flow hive is new and only a few people have got to use them as a trial thing and they're extremely expensive. The cost of the hive is around $400, and this is just, this would be the cost of like two to three beehives. <clears throat> the, a fellow Italian beekeeper, Rene Riccardi, writes Beekeeping involves respect, patience, and attention to the natural world. After years of beekeeping, you become attentive to humanity every day you step outside. I think that is true in anything you do. You should have respect, patience, and the one thing that is everybody's missed by seeing this flow hive is the stewardship that it takes to master a skill.
This flow hive has taken beekeepers away from the bees, making a more mass disconnection between the beekeeper and the bees. Some say the bees need to come for hygiene and communication. Others say it will be being beekeeping to new levels, with beekeepers able to move faster and populating hives faster. I'm not going to bash the flow hive. I think it's a novel idea, and in good hands can be a great tool for hobby beekeepers. In my opinion, I think you should learn beekeeping before you get a flow hive. As I've said before, it's extremely expensive, and one needs to learn the skill set and not just the novelty of it. The flow hive itself is very cool. The concept has been around for 75 years. This honey box and other honey boxes will be along and will be around for a long time. We will still need beekeepers. I will end up with one of them, I'm sure, after somebody's got stung and wants to get rid of it. But I think if you put one in a restaurant, it would attract many customers seeing you make honey for their biscuits. The flow hive is not natural, and it is not organic. And in the wrong hands, it could be a mass producer, producer of corn sugar honey. In fact, I've talked to the Wyoming Department of Agriculture here in the United States, and they're not sure yet if it can be used for sold commercial use due to the fact the comb is not subject to inspection, rotation, or cleaning. James and Marie get bees. Learn beekeeping. Find a mentor. Read books. Watch YouTube. After a little bit of learning and going about it, you may even go super organic and be totally against the flow high. Or maybe even get into top bar beekeeping, which you couldn't even use the flow high. After working with bees for five years or so, go ahead and make that $500 investment on a honey super box. I think you'll enjoy it. I think it'll be a great conversation piece. And then you can tell me what you think of it and how it works for you. Until it is like really out there and people are really using it, due to the fact it's not even out there, people are just purchasing something and they haven't even received the product. It is just like I said when we started this. This is all based on my opinion. I think you should learn the stewardship. I think you should get bees and work with them a while and see the predators, how you're going to inspect them and how you're going to work with the bees. And then go ahead and get one. Like I said, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just depends on your style of beekeeping and what you've learned. I do want to give mass props to Stuart and Cedar Anderson, the father and son team that, that wants to make changes in beekeeping. I too work with my dad and I could probably only tell you the joy that I would feel working side by side with my father on a really cool project that could be probably extremely controversial. I hope this helps you with your beekeeping. And I am the Bee Whisperer, and you can find me on Facebook or at abefriendlycompany.com. I just want to help you with your beekeeping and get little beaks involved. Hopefully I've been some help for you. I agree with Michael, and, and here's my take on this. It'll go a little Star Wars for you here, a little Jedi for you here. In beekeep beekeeping, there is a dark side and a light side. There is a totally exploitive side to beekeeping. 
There is, I don't give a damn about these bees. I don't care about these bees. I will take and I will take and I will take. And when I eventually take enough to crash a hive, I don't care. I'll just divide another hive and I'll just keep going. I'll buy another package. I don't care. It's somebody else's problem. I don't care. I just want to take all I can take. I'll feed them sugar and I'll call the crap that comes out the other side honey. I don't care. I don't care. I'll put them on trucks. I'll send them all over the country. I'll get them sprayed. I don't care. I just want what I want from the damn bees. And then there's the light side, which is people like Michael that, that care about The, the animals under your stewardship. These are little creatures. These are little animals. Just because they only live for six to eight weeks on average as a worker doesn't change that. And just like, you know, I will kill one of my ducks for dinner, it doesn't mean I'm going to treat that animal cruelly ever. That my goal is for that animal to have a single bad second during its entire life that it doesn't even know happened. That's, that's my goal as a manager of livestock. And I try to be as you know close to that as I can with bees by mostly leaving them the hell alone and not bothering them and letting them do their thing and making sure they have the space they need and whatever. Um, I think the flow hive has the potential to be used by the light side for very good things. I think that it also has the potential to be very exploitive, to be very much a, a, a Darth Vader style of beekeeping if abused. And the reason I like Michael's advice is, yes, you can use this, but learn the skill first, is I think the less you know about how to manage bees, the more tempted by the dark side you will become. And that it is important to develop a, a grounding in what is okay and what is not okay, what is good for bees and what is bad for bees, what a healthy hive looks like, what a sick hive looks like, and to develop your skills before you let something that could tempt you to the dark side into your world to be ready for the trials before they come. That's my take. Anyway, uh, next question is for Ben Falk. Ben, this is actually a question for me. Uh, I watched a show called Inhabit, uh, where you uh, spoke eloquently throughout the whole show, but just briefly on the concept of regenerative versus sustainable and the concept of a keystone species. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on that. Can you discuss the concept of being regenerative versus sustainable? and why you think the distinction is important. Further, do you really think that humans can be regenerative? And can you also discuss how we must do so because we are, as you call us, a keystone species? What say you, Ben? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. It's a very uh, crucial question. It's foundational, for sure, um, to all the work that we do. And I think... Um, It's also very timely because we're seeing, especially in the last five to 15, 20 years, um, the failure of the sustainability movement um, and, and everything kind of around the ideas of let's just do less bad, let's conserve, and also um, let's try to just sustain or you know, keep going um, the, the current situation. I don't think there's a single... Um, status quo that most rational human beings um, think is good enough or appropriate um, or just or 
or righteous to keep the same and that's that's kind of why i think people are starting to in one in one regard at least move beyond this concept of let's sustain let's be sustainable let's just conserve let's do less bad let's shrink our footprint uh to move into kind of the next stage let's put back let's produce let's regenerate let's improve the health of the world that we live in and that's that need is emerging at a time when we're also relearning and learning new ways of actually being able to do that and coming to a realization that we can do that um the carbon farming and kind of rapid topsoil formation movement is um, a good example of that. We're realizing now through careful use of perennial tree crops and um, intensive rotational grazing, among other strategies, we can build topsoil many, many times, like 10 to 100 times more rapidly, if not a 1,000 times more rapidly than, quote-unquote, nature can do so on her own through a forested ecosystem or a, a perennial, even a perennial um, grassland ecosystem. Our, our Essentially, our management strategies and the way we harness the forces of disturbance and rest and succession in ecosystems can accelerate the life processes which are regenerative. And we see that most um, acutely, I think, in our ability to build topsoil rapidly. Also an ability to bioremediate and, and reduce toxins in the environment that have been building up. So um, the need is clearly there. Um, we know we can't just sustain. We need to improve. We need to build the health of the land that we live in and, and the world that we live in, starting probably from, from each of our landscapes. Um, but it's also important to mention a third point, which is that it's very difficult to be regenerative in some ways on, on the net. Certainly, I'm looking at a landscape right now where I see a much greater level of, of biodiversity than when I got here. You know, I see a hundred plus species of perennial tree crops and, and many more varieties as well as annual tree crops and m most of which have a wildlife function. I'm seeing topsoil built on all sides of me more rapidly than was the case when I got here. It was largely a, a goldenrod and white pine monoculture. Um, I'm seeing um, water slowed, spread, and sunk. You know, now we're moving water through this landscape much more slowly, putting much more of it into the groundwater table. But it's taken a lot of energy to do this. Um, I see fiberglass posts here and metal. I'm looking at a computer. I drive my car. So um, I have a car. I mean, you know, a good example, I was thinking of this yesterday, the, the embodied energy versus output energy is I was going to buy a new um, hog panel for trellising for my peas. And just thinking to myself, wow, you know, what a crazy energy exchange, right? How many years will it take for those peas to produce the amount of energy that's embodied in that steel hog panel and everything that went into producing that steel hog panel? It's, it's embodied energy. And I don't know what, how many years that will take, but it, it will be many. Um, you know, arguably it will be far longer than that hog panel will last, you know, before it turns into just rusty dust and that's the game that we're playing that we're engaged in that this very difficult game of trying to have a greater return uh, you know a greater output than input 
and have a, a, a return on our investment, which is greater than than what we're putting in from an energy, strictly energy standpoint alone, as well as also from a from a um, you know kind of bio viability standpoint. Um, we can easily put more inputs of not just energy but of, of toxins into the system to make something happen that's good, um, but have that that kind of toxic accumulation and energetic accumulation be building up and reconciled somewhere else in some other part of the world. Um, we call that an externality. You know, think about the the incredibly toxic bioaccumulating, you know, loaded areas of, of acute toxicity in parts of China. I was reading about one in Mongolia the other day um, where some of the rare earth minerals that we use every day in our phones and the computer I'm using right now are manufactured and processed. You know, I don't see the cost of that, but the cost of that is very real, and it, and it only accumulates. I mean, nuclear power is a great example of that, and this kind of long-term accumulation of cost, you know, this, this is piling up of debt, and in this way, it's ecological debt. Um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind, although we're very excited with the possibilities for regeneration, and we see how real they are, and we work with those every day. Um, we should be humbled at how, at the cost that it takes to do that regeneration and, and the embodied energy in our lives and um, just of the whole, of the net, you know, input, output. And so it's important to remember that the, the more we can reduce our needs and shrink our needs as well, um, the the better our work will be. So, you know, reducing our population, that's not something that's easy or, or very um um, kind of straightforward to talk about or figure out from a policy standpoint. I won't even go there. Um, I wouldn't know how to do that for sure. But we know that if we can reduce our population, the human population, all of our work is going to be much more easily achieved. I don't think it's mandatory, but we would. The greater the numbers of people we have of human beings, the more ingenious and righteous our actions will have to be. Uh, you know, every day, every every week, every month, every year. So we'll certainly lower the threshold of perfection needed if we if we reduce consciously uh, our population. And, and chances are that will be done unconsciously for us, unintentionally, if we don't do it ourselves, but not in nearly as cool of a way. So that's important to mention. You can't have any discussion about any of this, I think, without mentioning kind of the, the big... Uh, elephant in the room of population um, to some extent. So I hope that is helpful. I think, you know, lastly to address your question about keystone species, um, the idea that, that that humans are a keystone species, absolutely. We are, are one of the most influential species. I, I hesitate to say the most because there are species of bacteria and, and little microscopic organisms that have roles far beyond we probably uh, realize the extent of. Um, but we certainly are incredibly impactful and um you know what we do uh, can cause all manner of tipping points. Whether it's it's for the the negative, as it has been for uh, longer, I think a period of time than we than we care to admit. Not even just since the agricultural revolution, but really far before we've been wreaking havoc uh, as kind of this upright organism on this planet. And um, we also have just as much leverage to do good. But it's certainly challenging, whether it's a challenge that we'll pull off and, and kind of ultimately end up in a, um, 
a viable long-term situation is anyone's guess. I, I wouldn't, I don't really even have an expectation about that anymore. Um, I try not to even think about that. We're just doing the work we know is important and we enjoy and is satisfying and it'll be what it is. Um, I do take, you know, some solace in the fact that no matter what we do, uh, you know, there'll be a, a comet that hits the earth again and, obliterates all of our best efforts and there'll be another ice age again you know the ice will will come back and cover all of our oak and walnut and and nut pine plantings as well and even bulldoze our our best earthworks so it's all for naught in the end and you know in, in the biggest of pictures but of course we're trying to um do the best we can and have the least amount of suffering and the most amount of joy in this short kind of interglacial period that we occupy and inter kind of galactic impact period that we happen to find ourselves in today. Well, I'll tell you what, there's probably people that the last part of that might have hit the wrong way, the fatalism. But here's the deal. Let's say no comets hit us. Well, at some point, that giant big orange thing that comes up every morning and warms the planet is going to turn into a much larger red thing and turn this planet into a cinder. The, the, the truth is that we are not going to be here eternally, and we are certainly not going to be eternal in any way in bodily form. There's a spiritual component there that people have different beliefs about exactly how that works, but you're mortal, and every other being on this planet is mortal, and sooner or later this planet itself will go away. We are stewards here on this planet, and I believe as a steward we should do the best that we can. The fatalism assists us this way. It forces us to realize I can't make others do what I want done. I can't impose my will on others. I can't say, this is the way things are supposed to be. What I have to actually do is go out and prove that those things work so that other people will wish to emulate that which I feel is good. And to me, that is regenerative. That it is only regenerative types of techniques and restoration types of techniques that will ever garner that. Because anything that's sustainable is sustainable only due to the inputs that go into it. If we can make things regenerative where they actually get better in time, we will attract others that want to emulate our success. That's my take on that. Anyway, let's go to our next one. Uh, since we're in the permaculture world right now, it's good that we're sticking uh, to it with Mr. Jeff Lawton, who I think is probably the, um, the, the most advanced permaculture teacher out there right now. Um, certainly my greatest mentor. And I have a question for him today from Mike, and this is a unique one, one that I really haven't heard Jeff speak at length before about other than NPDCs. He says, uh, Mike says, one place I feel a lot of work really remains to be done with permaculture is in the Chapter 14 world. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, Chapter 14 is Alternatives to a New Global Nation. And that sounds all like one world government to people that aren't of the understanding, but that is all about autonomous individual groups doing their own thing, their own way, and bartering within their groups and between their groups. It is actually the complete antithesis of, uh, of one world government type thinking. Anyway, back to the question, especially with the concepts like let's, Intercommunity banking, etc. Can you discuss how Bill uh, Mollison's vision of doing business first with those you know face to face and self governance can actually become a reality via permaculture? That is a great question. One I'd like to just get Jeff on to do a full show on. But here's just you know five to ten minute answer to that question. So my question here is from Mike. This is Jeff Lawton here in Australia. And I'm, I'm, um, 
answering Mike's question. And Mike's question is, one place I feel a lot of work really needs to be done with permaculture is in the chapter 14 world. Um, especially with concepts like LETS, local energy or local exchange and transfer systems, or local exchange and trading systems, intercommunity banking, etc. Can you discuss how Bill's vision of doing business first with those you you know face to face and self governance can actually become a reality? via permaculture so chapter 14 for those who don't know is strategies for a global alternative nation and um, what we actually need for this to be more of a reality is more people engaged in permaculture action which is living by the ethics of people care earth care and return of surplus now returning surplus to People care and earth care is a kind of a necessity for us to be involved in trading and um, local currency and local exchange systems because we really don't have any business to do until we have surplus to trade. So what we find here at the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia with a, a large amount of surplus at times Um, When there's not so many people here taking courses, we trade with the local community shop, we trade with local people, and trade naturally starts to happen. Um, So when more and more people have surplus to trade, it becomes inevitable that we go into those alternative trading, alternative currency, and alternative exchange systems. And a lot of people actually want community before... um, they've got anything to trade or anything to exchange. They haven't got any surplus, but they want community first. Um, And it's very hard to design community, especially when you don't have the processes and protocols of traditional society in place. So most people that want community first are people in the first world who feel like they're in the overdeveloped world um, and the over-regulated world, and they want to get back to sort of natural living systems, um, but they don't have the understanding of living in the natural living system and creating a surplus by that living example and that design, intentional design mind way of thinking ourselves into surplus. So it's kind of like trying to um, build a cart, but you haven't got a horse to pull it. So you've got to have that. You've got to have that engine you've got to have that economic engine of of surplus materials surplus produce Um, where we see the best communities that are established uh, initially with um, a uh, alignment with permaculture principles has been the uh, community land trust systems so um, there's actually been a sort of sequence of um, evolution from um, the early communes that then turned into the e- eco-villages which usually ended up being ego-villages rather than eco-villages and often the one the, the eco-villages that be, were successful were also um, 
very desirable and went up in capital gain. So often young people couldn't afford to stay in the successful eco-villages simply because their um, the, the real estate price is too high. So uh, the evolution on from eco-villages really ended up with the community land trust movement, which takes capital gain um, out of the system. It takes uh, land ownership into another level of working with people together um, with a, a, a um, sort of a board of directors that are directing the, um, um, the mission statement of the overall mission of the Community Land Trust and a uh, land manager directorship of people who are actively uh, experienced um, and um, uh, manage the land and how the land can then be managed by the, the, the members of the, of the land trust so it doesn't get overexploited and there's not um, ridiculous amounts of inequality in the, in the land use systems in the community land trust movement. So um, that's what I've experienced. That's what I know of. When we're dealing with um, traditional communities that already have uh, their processes in, or, or still have their processes and pro- protocols in position um, and they find it easier to move into a um, permaculture community alignment, then um, trading often, traditional trading systems outside of the money system are often already in place um, and it's then just a matter of, of adjusting those to fit the permaculture model so um, that's what I think we need to do is we need to seriously engage then things like uh, alternative currencies um, let systems and intercommunity banking becomes um, more acceptable although there are, of course, alternative currencies in position and there are places where let's works reasonably well, but nowhere near as well as it will do when we're all actually taking the permaculture ethics more seriously and creating surplus that then can be returned to earth care and people care. Um, and I think the best model to move us forward is page 510 in chapter 14 of Bill's designer's manual to um, assemble the bioregional resources as a list of information that is useful to anybody within any bioregion anywhere on earth is a way that we take our local community group action into uh, a meaningful activity that gives us the relevant information to move towards that surplus that I... Okay, Jeff got cut off there a little bit at the end. Probably no way for him to know that. He you know, makes that recording and sends it in from God knows where. He might be in Jordan right now. He might be in Australia right now. Who knows where he's at. But anyway, uh, basically what he's saying is that at, at the end there, coming back to the concept that you need the surplus uh, from your own individual activities before you can engage in commerce with other groups in your area. In other words, you have to have created value so that you can do value for value exchanges. I completely agree, and I think that's one of the big issues that Jeff brought up there, that there are so many people that want to talk about community, um, but yet they don't have a, a value 
to offer the community. And people want to say, well, human beings have intrinsic worth and you're worth something as a person. That's fine. But when it comes to actually developing commerce, commerce is about an exchange. So we have to develop at least enough to take care of that hierarchy of needs so that we're reasonably safe, we're reasonably clothed, we have a reasonable sense of purpose so that we're full, complete human beings before we have enough of ourselves, let alone enough of goods and services to exchange with each other. So I think there's a lot of work left to be done there yet, probably more than any other aspect of permaculture, and we need to do more work to develop sustainable communities so that they can reach out to each other. It was also interesting to hear him talk about how the eco-villages become unattainable uh, or even you can't even stay there the people that build them end up priced out of the equation and using things like land trusts and things like that to ensure that doesn't happen um, when I think about perma ethos and my original vision for it I, I often come back to that and think that maybe maybe it's a good thing it didn't work out the way that I planned the first time around and that maybe someday we'll look at taking the eco village side the community aspect side another swing at it figuring out a different way to do it And that maybe by the time we do that, there'll be more templates, more blueprints to where we can do it in a way that is more um, long-term beneficial to the people that make it happen in the beginning. Because um, that was just a concern that I never even really thought of. Like if the price of the property goes up, that's a good thing. Well, I'm sure that it is, but it's also a bad thing if you're paying tax on it or if the entire entity is paying tax on it. So if you can cap equity value of property in some way so that your grandchildren could inherit it without you know, having to sell it just to pay the tax on it, those are interesting things to start looking at. How do we get better at the art of not being governed? How do we stop letting them tell us what our surplus is worth so we can tell them what our surplus is worth? Or say we don't have a surplus, we've given it all away. Or here's our surplus, you can't figure out how it works, so we'll pay you a dollar on it. Uh, I'm being a little simplistic here, but I think there's a lot of work left to do with that as well. For these autonomous communities to work together and exchange with each other, we need to get the overriding central authority out of the way. And we need to make it so complex, not just for the sake of regenerative and sustainability and all the other things that we want to do in permaculture, but from the standpoint of when a, when a bureaucrat looks at it, for like every wire in their brain to just go, I, I don't understand, here's $5, go away. And again, I'm simplifying it, but that's the kind of mentality we need to have. We need a tax assessor to look at land and go, this is nothing but a bunch of weeds. It's completely unimproved, $300 a year uh, per acre or something like that, where everybody that has that acre goes, okay, fine. Especially with inflation, and that's 10 years from now, and it's like $100 an acre. Anyway, good stuff from Jeff as always. Want to move on to our next question. This one for my good friend and expert council member and founder of ITS Tactical, Brian Black. Uh, this is from Matthew. He says, What are some good firearms drills I can practice at home with no ammo, specifically related to self defense? Uh, I'm very busy at this point in my life. I don't have the time or funds to hit the range as often as I would like to. Uh, additionally, the closest and most convenient range is indoors only, allows and only allows handguns, so I can't practice with long guns there. So, Brian, what have you to say on that one, sir? Hey, guys, this is Brian Black with ITS Tactical, answering a question from Matthew, who asked, um, what are some good firearms drills that I can practice at home uh, without any ammunition specifically related to self-defense? Um, Matthew's at a very busy point in his life and doesn't have time or the funds to hit the range as often as he'd like. Um, 
also talking about the fact that the most convenient range is indoors and only allows handguns and you can't practice long guns there. Um, also followed up with a, a question in terms of some drills that he can do at home to, you know, drive the, the fundamentals. Um, he specifically lists muscle memory and technique. But uh, so first off, there's a ton you can learn outside the range without ever firing around. Um, hopefully most of you guys are familiar with dry fire practice. Uh, dry fire is immensely important for training the fundamentals of marksmanship, and uh, I'd highly recommend investing in a cert pistol. And I'm not just trying to sell a product here. I actually really think this thing works. Um, so basically, cert is uh, Sierra India Roma, Romeo Tango. It stands for shot indicating resetting trigger. And having a resetting trigger on a gun you're using to dry fire is immensely important. And uh, it's just it's phenomenal for dry fire drills at home. Um, we've got a review of that cert pistol on ITS, too, if you check it out. So a quick search there will probably bring up that article. It's a video that one of our contributors, Buff, did. It's a, it's a phenomenal walkthrough of cert pistol and everything you can do with it. Um, anyway, there's so much that can be accomplished fundamental-wise, drawing from a holster, presenting the gun, taking up the slack and trigger, um, squeezing it, and controlling reset. So um, there's also some great articles on dry fire and ITS, so a quick search there would bring up a few of those resources. I also recommend um, a good friend of mine, Chris Dynod's book, How to Shoot Like a Navy SEAL. Um, the title might sound advanced, but, but Chris has a great way of explaining the fundamentals that I've, I've never seen before. Um, you can also check out his YouTube channel. He's done some uh, contributing articles on ITS as well. Um, his channel is Center Mass Group, um, so a search of that on YouTube will bring that up. And uh, his website is www.centermassgroup.com. I'd highly recommend that as a resource as well. Um, so back to one of Matthew's other questions is uh, he's got a primary weapon, and he was wondering what he should do as far as home defense. Um, he's got a Mossberg 500, and I would, I would advise you to use that as your primary. Um, it's really kind of a personal preference, um, that in between um, – Matthews Springfield XD, so um, really whatever you're comfortable with. Obviously, a shotgun, you know, has a spread. Um, you need to be aware of certain things, obviously, when you're talking about home defense, um, you know, such as where your rounds are going and what they do. I mean, this goes all back to the firearm safety rules, knowing your target and what's behind it. Um, a shotgun, shotgun does a good job of producing a spread, but it also means that, you know, you need to be aware of what's around you and behind your target. Um, eight shot is a good home defense round, um, but really you need a good weapon mounted light too so you can properly identify the target um, in a dark environment or a handheld if you're using a pistol or just whatever you're comfortable with really. Um, there's no right or wrong answer, you know, technically when it comes to this. It really just has to be down to, to what works for you. So uh, thanks for the questions, guys. Uh, keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help Explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itsfactual.com. Thanks a lot. Great stuff from Brian. I'm really happy to tell you guys that we'll be hanging out with uh, him and Kelly uh, at their place this weekend a little bit. I don't get to see Brian as often as I should, considering how close he is to our home. I'll tell you one of the things I like to do, whether it's for self-defense or for hunting or anything with, with my personal uh, dry fire drills and things like that, using, of course, safely checked, unloaded weapon, one in a home or anywhere else where you're doing anything where you expect that it's unloaded. You, you verify that, you know, a hundred times before you do anything like this. But what I like to do, and I don't care if I'm using a telescopic sight, I'm using iron sights, I'm using a, a shotgun with just a bead and, and a flat barrel, um, I like to t pick a spot. 
on a wall or a picture or something like that. And look at that spot. And you can do this with handguns too. And I'll look at that spot and I'll close my eyes and I'll bring the weapon to bear where I think that target was, where it is in my, my mental computer, where, where I saw it. And I'll, 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 I'll hold that weapon exactly as though I was going to shoot it blindfolded. And then I'll open my eyes and I'll see where the sights really are and I'll check my form. And I'll say to myself, low two inches as I move up onto the target and, and go back onto the target. I'll bring the weapon back down. I'll close my eyes again. And I'll go back to that target. And I'll say, okay, one inch high right. And I'll bring the target back down. And I'll do that over and over again. And I'll and whenever I start getting on that target, I'll pick something at a different distance, at a different angle. And I'll do that again. What ends up happening is you're training your mind to act actually independently of your vision during the motion, if that makes sense. In other words, yeah, you see it, yeah, you're bringing the target there, but your your body is getting as close as possible to being and having that last adjustment that's visual being as small as possible. And uh, it's worked very well for me, and it's actually, I'll tell you the place that it's made the greatest improvements is in my shotgun shooting, and not so much tactical. I'm talking sporting clays or knocking birds down. It is is made um, the flow of bringing that weapon up and tracking a bird much more automatic, and and that's one of my favorite drills that I'll add to what Brian had to say. Um, next one up is uh, a question for Chef Keith Snow. This is from Stephen. Stephen says, "I recently started raising quail based off the interview with Brad Davies, aka Moon Valley Prepper." After our first cull, we had bacon-wrapped grilled quail, and it was delish. My question for Keith Snow, Keith, what are your favorite ways to prepare home-raised and butchered quail? Side note, what are your thoughts on gaminess as a flavor also? Uh, let me uh, hear, or let us hear now what uh, Chef Snow has. This is your warning. If you haven't eaten yet, you're probably going to be hungry after this segment. Hey, it's Shep Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. Wanted to answer a question from Stephen about quail. Now, Stephen, I understand you've been raising some quail, and that is pretty cool. My late uncle, he uh, passed away about three years ago, uh, had a farm in upstate New York, just south of Albany, about 160 acres. And I visited him when he was about 79 years old, and he was just an absolutely incredible gardener. And he took me out to the barns in the back of the property, and they were big metal buildings. And uh, there were these giant round things in there, and he was... Um, he was an avid hunter, you know, him and my dad hunted all over the place, a lot of bird hunting, quail, pheasant, you name it, ducks, and he started raising, when he got a little older, quail and pheasant um, in huge numbers, absolutely massive numbers, thousands and thousands of them, and then he would let them go on the property, and then friends, and later on some people would come and pay him to hunt on the land uh, to get all these uh, game birds, so... Yeah, quail and, and things like that are awesome. Now, you mentioned something about the gaminess. Now, one one thing that's interesting to note, when an animal is out in the wild eating what it should eat, the meat has more flavor. Now, a lot of Americans will equate that with gaminess. Like if you get some grass-fed beef or maybe some buffalo burgers, they taste a little gamey. What that is, that is a signal to you that the animal has been eating 
good things, a natural diet, grasses, forages, bugs, whatever they eat, when you taste a rich flavor like that, don't confuse it with, you know, gamey or bad. You know, same thing when people have deer for the first time. Oh boy, they get a little freaked out. Uh, and that's because we've been conditioned to eat, you know, grain fed factory farm trash, like chicken breast. I mean, chicken breast, of course, I've cooked with it loads of times. It's useless. I mean, there's no flavor in a chicken breast. It's just white stuff. And that's the problem where people worry about gaminess. Now, just try to train your palate. When you taste a little quote-unquote gaminess, that's an animal that's been raised properly, and you should relish it. Now, a couple things about quail. Um, quail are teeny little small birds, as you know. Um, when you're cooking quail, make sure they're, you take them out and they're up to room temperature and they're, they're semi-boned and, and prepped. That's the assumption I'm going to make now. They're ready to go. You didn't lop the head off and it's got internals in it. So this thing is prepped and ready to go. Um, now, a lot of times you'll see quail cooked with um, things like gooseberries and um, fruit and pomegranates. And it's the same thing with lots of uh, game meats, whether it's duck and all that. And I'm not saying this is bad. It's just overdone. You know, too many people want to want to do these fruit sauces with them. And, you know, I've done that and it's great, but there's other ways to do it. I'm going to give you an idea now. And this is roasted quail with a shallot, fig, and balsamic reduction sauce. Now, this is pretty easy to do. The first thing you want to do is make the sauce. And your sauce, you're going to start out with a little bit of olive oil in a sauce pot with a finely minced shallot. Now, you toss that in there, and then on top of that, a finely minced clove of garlic is going to go on top of that. Now, you want to start sweating those two things out for a few minutes. Just put a touch of kosher salt and black pepper in there. Now, um, figs. Figs are awesome. I'm not talking about fig newtons. Don't crumble up any fig newtons in there. Find yourself some, uh, hopefully organic black mission figs. Now this is the season for them right now as I'm recording this, um, in late June. You'll start to see these things in markets. They're about four, four or five bucks a pound. They're not cheap, but a little goes a long way. And try to, when you buy them without the produce person watching, you know, Give them a little feel with your fingers. If they're if they're super soft, they're they're beyond what you want. So try to find ones that are firm. And I wouldn't use the green sort of Turkish figs. Or um, in the southern part of the United States, there's a lot of fig trees. Now those are okay, but these Black Mission figs are they're money, man. This is the way to go. Take six um, Black Mission figs, just pop off the stem, cut them in half, and toss them into your oil shallot and garlic mixture. Take something like a wooden spoon and just start to press down on those. You're going to break them up a little bit. And they've got just a wonderful sweetness and they've got other stuff going on inside of a, a fig that's kind of magical. Figs and cheese are awesome, but this is going to be great when you're done. So start to break those up and you're sautéing. You don't have it too hot to where things are, are getting brown, but you've got a lot of action going on in the pan. Now, you're going to take two tablespoons of balsamic vinegar. Now, this is not um, – I'm trying to give you the good way to do it. If you go to the store and you buy just a $2 bottle of balsamic vinegar, you know, just – it's – dude, you want the good stuff. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You don't need a lot of it. We're talking about two tablespoons. Go to a gourmet food store because you're going to want to make this over and over again, I'm sure, and buy some aged balsamic vinegar. 
much, much better. Look for the country of origin, Italy, and Modena, M-O-D-E-N-A. That's the good place to get it from. Spain has some good stuff, too, but you can't go wrong with um, a good age balsamic. So a couple tablespoons of that goes into the pan. What you want to do is cook that out just for a little bit. Because it's age, it's going to be a little thicker than the watery, soupy garbage that you get at the store. And by the way, balsamic vinegar is made with white grapes. People are thinking, what? It's a dark sauce made with Trebbiano white grapes. So you have the balsamic in there. Just cook it for another minute or so. You're going to put in one teaspoon of coconut palm sugar. And, of course, if you don't have that, you can go ahead and substitute one teaspoon of regular sugar. But I definitely appreciate the coconut palm sugar. And... A minced sage leaf. Get some fresh sage, not dried rub sage. Fresh sage leaves. Minced it up. Throw it in there with a quarter cup of chicken stock. And mix the whole thing up. Let it cook for about 20 minutes or so. And then you want to pop it into something like a Vitamix or just put a a little stick blender in there. You want to puree this up just a little bit. And at the very end... You're going to season it again with salt and pepper. Make sure it tastes good. It should have an intense, dark, slightly, I don't want to say bitter, but a real um, kind of rich flavor. You put in a teaspoon of lemon juice, swirl that in, have some sage leaves on the side minced up. Your quail, you just put a little olive oil, salt and pepper in a 375-degree oven for I would say about 20 minutes until those are done, and then serve those with a little bit of your um, balsamic fig reduction, and you will be living large. I'd love to know how that comes out. So when you make it, maybe you could go over to harvesteating.com or uh, facebook.com slash harvesteating and post a photo. That would be great. Now, everybody um, out there, I want to let you know I'm still running a store special. People are digging the um, Carolina barbecue, and I'm shipping that for free. And I'm also still looking for those of you that want to try the Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauces. Production day is July 7th, and um, we're going to be shipping those to the Amazon warehouse, and I would love to ship a couple of jars to you. If you email me, keith at harvesteating.com, I can send you out a coupon code for that. So with that, um, everybody have a great weekend. Jack, thanks so much for what you do. Take care, everyone. So I keep saying we're going to do quail next, and my wife keeps saying maybe, and I keep saying not maybe. Um, and now I want quail today. Um, it's typical when Chef Keith talks about this stuff, you, you, you want to eat. Um I, I'm going to go make some eggs, I think, before I finish the rest of today's show, just so I have something in my belly, because now I'm all hungry. Um, a little addition, though, on the gaminess. I think that there's, personally, when I hear the term gamey, um, it means a lot different things to me than I think it does from a lot of people. Um, my personal opinion is gamey is generally a word for dumbasses that can't either prep or cook right, if it's real. If it actually is what people refer to as a gamey flavor when they're not talking about what Chef Keith's talking about, because it's also a word consumers use to say doesn't taste like chicken or beef. Um, when it doesn't taste like chicken or beef, it means exactly what Chef Keith said. But I think there are two ways that you get stuff that people call gamey that has a bad taste, a legitimate taste that I would taste and say that's that's not right. 
The first is that people that prep the meat don't know what the hell they're doing. They have um, a quarter deer in a cooler covered in ice, and it ends up soaking in like water for like two days before they finally get it home from deer camp. There's barely any ice left in it. It's cold, it's safe, but it's been soaking in water for days, and they get home and just cut it up, wrap it up, and throw it in the freezer. Uh, that would be one example. When they skin it, they, they, they don't get the glands out of the way. Like the, 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 the glands have these hormones and they, they have a, a gnarly taste. Or a smaller animal, especially when, when it's being gutted, if you break the gallbladder, the gallbladder is one of the most horrible tasting, bile disgusting things in the world. And if that gets smeared on the meat, so that's one way. And then the most common reason that the game is, is not appreciated when it's served to someone who's, who's given it a chance for the first time and then it ruins them and they think game sucks is overcooking, overcooking, overcooking. Um, either with something small like a quail, you overcook it till it's dry. Uh, or with deer, you overcook it because you're retarded, honestly. Um, and I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but you, you, I mean, really, you're just being stupid for the sake of being stupid. Venison, unless it's like something slow-cooked like a roast that's being done as a stew, should be red in the middle. If it's gray all the way through, it's going to taste like liver and poorly cooked liver. If you overcook any lean meat, it gets mealy and mushy and liver-like in the worst way the word liver-like can mean. That's not gamey. That that flavor's not... If you've had deer meat and it's dry and, and, and liver-like, that's not gamey. That's overcooked by someone that doesn't know how to cook venison. That's what that is. Venison should be juicy and succulent and caramelized on the outside and still pink to red on the inside. People are afraid of game. So they think they have to cook it like till they murder it. Don't murder the meat. Don't murder the meat. Stop being afraid to eat game with a little bit of pink to it. Pork, especially wild pork, should be fully cooked. But there's a balance point where, okay, we're done. We've cooked it now. Methods of cooking and time of cooking and temperature of cooking are all very, very important with these different types and different cuts of meat. And remember, there's no such thing as game. It really is a, is a poor choice of the word when we're talking about meat that we're eating. There's only meat. And every piece of meat is different, not just by the animal, but by the cut. The way that I'm going to prepare a shank off of a cow is very different than the way I'm going to prepare uh, a ribeye steak or uh, filet mignon, right? a tenderloin. And a loin and a tenderloin are not the same thing. right? So I think all of that needs to be taken into account as we make decisions uh, about how we're going to uh, handle meat and what is and what is not gamey. Uh, sorry to get off on a tangent there, but gamey bugs me. I, I don't even like, I hate the word. It's screwed up or flavor. It's, it's not gamey. There's no such thing. It's, it's nonsense. Anyway, I'll let it go. I'll let it go, let it go, right? I had to send somebody that Disney song today because they were holding on to something. Anyway, uh, Steve Harris is the person we have the next question for. This comes from Theo. Theo says, Steve, how safe is it to li live near a nuclear power plant? And are there any special preps you'd recommend? I've been offered a great career opportunity, but I'd need to ro relocate about 15 miles due east of an active nuclear power plant. Do you think that should be a concern at all, or are the dire warnings on the Internet just hot air? Thanks, Theo. Can't think of a better person for this one than Stephen Harris to cut through the hype and still point out the actual risks. Stephen, what say you, sir? 
Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Let's look at some death statistics. 2,500 people died at Pearl Harbor. 2,752 people died at 9-11. D-Day, 4,400 people died. Accidental deaths in the United States, 126,438 in year 2013. That's 126,000 deaths just in one year from accidents. Some of those were motor vehicle accidents with 40,000 deaths, accidental discharge of firearms, accidental drowning and submersion like swimming pools and lakes and rivers, accidental falls is a very big part of that accidental death rate, accidental exposure to smoke, fire, or flames, and accidental poisoning and exposure to noxious substances. These kill people. Accidents are the fifth leading form of death in the USA behind heart disease, cancer, and stroke. And falls, falls or falling from a height, like off a ladder, are a big part of this. I got light, a light bulb burned out in my ceiling of my house, and um, in the living room, it's like 14 feet up there. And I got a ladder that will reach it, but I got to stand on the very top. And I ain't going to change it. I'm going to call the electrician and have him come over with his really big ladder and go up and change all four of my light bulbs over to LED light bulbs so they never burn out. So I'm taking my own damn advice that I'm telling you here right now. So there were over 3.5 million emergency room visits just in 2013 for accidents. Not deaths, but 3.5 million ER visits. So you ask if living near a nuclear plant is dangerous. Do you live near a swimming pool? There's accidental drownings. Do you drive a car? There's 40,000 deaths a year. Do you have electricity in your home? Kids stick their finger into the sockets and people wiring their houses kill themselves off 120 volts every damn day. Do you live in a big city or in the inner city? There were over nearly 15,000 homicides in the United States in 2010. Are you like me? Are you fat, overweight, at risk for high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes risk? Here are some of the leading causes of death in the United States. Over 600,000 die each year from heart disease. 600,000 each year. Over 580,000 from cancer. Over about 150,000 from stuff like pneumonia. As I said, 126,000 from accidents and 129,000 people from strokes. Note, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people here, okay? Heart disease, cancer, and strokes and all things that can happen from being fat and overweight accounted for 1.3 million deaths per year in 2013. Let me say that again. Being obese and overweight are contributing factors, contributing factors that accounted to 1.3 million deaths per year in 2013. Now hundreds of thousands, million. So you want to talk about the survival podcast and how to prepare for a disaster for power failures and earthquakes and nuclear war and tornadoes? Well, Speaking of tornadoes, in 2011, 553 people died from tornadoes. 553. And I just told you that 1.3 million people died from heart disease, uh, cancer, and strokes in 2013. A big portion of these are early onset disease from being obese.
So when Jack talks about eating healthy, has people on the Survival Podcast talking about disease from inflammation, and Jack talks about eating healthy with a paleo diet and growing your own food, and people complain that this is now the survival gardening show and not about survival anymore, Jack is desperately trying to help a big portion of the 1.3 million people who are dying a year from shoving food in your face. Again, not all 1.3 million are from being obese, but uh, being obese and fat is a contributing factor to many of these. So with 99 operational nuclear power reactors making electricity in the United States, in the 50-year history, 50-year history of nuclear power in the USA, there has been zero deaths associated with radiological accidents. Zero. Even as bad as Fukushima was with several reactors fully melting down, creating hydrogen and then blowing the tops off the containment buildings, uh, that's 10-foot thick pieces of concrete going 500 feet in the air, an incredible chemical explosion. There have been so far zero attributed deaths due to radiation from Fukushima. In fact, no one even died from the reactor buildings blowing their tops off. There were no deaths at Fukushima. Even Chernobyl had less than 60 immediate deaths. Chernobyl was a graphite-moderated reactor. The rest of the civilized world uses water-moderated reactors, which are much safer. So the amount of radiation you receive from standing at the fence the fence line near a nuclear reactor is just a little bit more radiation than you receive from sleeping next to your wife at night. Yes, humans are radioactive. We ingest potassium-40 from things like bananas and other foods, and that makes us slightly radioactive. So if you want to be really risky with radiation, then try sleeping next to two women. Now that's dangerous. So to answer your question about is it safe to live near a nuclear power plant, the answer is yes, it is incredibly safe to live next to a nuclear power plant in the United States of America. What you should be asking is, is it safe to live near a 7-Eleven that sells Cheetos, potato chips, and Twinkies, along with 48-ounce big gulps of Pepsi or Coke with sugar or high-fructose corn syrup? That's a good question to ask. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel saying goodbye. All of my stuff with Jack can be found at Stephen1234.com. Thank you. Uh, now, just before anybody tries to nitpick, uh, when Steve said no one died at Fukushima, he meant from radiation. Yes, people drowned. And I think that would just reinforce his point. In, in one of the worst radioactive accidents that's occurred in modern times, the... Uh, the ocean and the earthquake were far more dangerous than the reactor that blew up. I don't think he's poo-pooing the dangers of if something goes wrong with a nuclear power plant. Just that if we look at mankind's history with nuclear power over the years, there is almost nothing uh, that ever kills anybody that hasn't killed more people. Now, I know there's the Tin Hatters that say, but Fukushima's killing us all right now. <sighs> Steve didn't really go into how many nuclear bombs this country and other countries around the world detonated from, oh, about 1960 through 1970. But let me just say it was a lot, and there's a hell of a lot more radiation released due to those activities uh, than from Fukushima or 
as far as the rest of the world rather than just the surrounding area goes, Chernobyl. Anyway, with that, if a nuclear power plant blows up and you're inside it, you have a problem. If one blows up and you're near it, you probably have a problem. If the right accident happens, people for very far around it have a problem, but I wouldn't let the existence of one prevent me from living somewhere because, again, the total number of people killed in this country from nuclear accidents is zero. Uh, compare that to, again, driving your car, um, I don't know, swimming in the ocean. Uh, there's been more people killed by sharks um, in the last five years around the world than, you know, killed by nuclear radiation. Just saying. Uh, next up, we have a question for Gary Collins. This is from Tyler. He says, I'm becoming more aware of how my body is affected by food and thus want to eat even better. While I already live and work on a farm, eating wholesome vegetables, fruits, and meats, I'm curious as to what kind of food affects me poorly. I've heard a lot of craze about the paleo diet, but also Whole30 and recently keto. How is one to begin dissecting all these options? Admits the copious amount of books out there. And find an appropriate solution to actually begin a healing eating pattern. Thanks for the guidance, Gary. So, Mr. Collins, what say you, sir? Hello, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And we have an excellent question from Tyler today. He actually has two questions. I'll address uh, both of them. Uh, the first one is he's living and working on a farm. And he's eating all, you know, fruits, vegetables, and free-range uh animals so he's doing really well but he's trying to take it to the next level and figure out what foods could be affecting him negatively and then that ties into a second part of his question with all the buzzwords and you know paleo uh primal keto ketogenic uh whole 30 he throw he threw in there and low carb which i'll talk about as well and i'll dissect it a little bit hopefully it'll make it easier on him but as far as finding your intolerances for certain foods, it's very, very difficult. Um, everyone's different uh, as you age, as your gut flora changes. Um, those intolerances change throughout your lifetime. There's foods that you can't tolerate early on in life that you can tolerate later in life. There's foods that you can tolerate have tolerated for decades that suddenly you can no longer tolerate. That's just the way it is. Our, our bodies are very complicated as far as the biochemistry. So it's, it's hard to determine what foods specifically, but there's an, a way to do it. And that's why I like the paleo diet because the paleo diet is an elimination diet. I'll take it a step further. One good way is to do a detox slash cleanse, which I'm, I need to write a book, uh, a, a book on that. And I'm, it's on my list to do right away because get a lot of questions. That's the easiest way because you eliminate almost every food that could cause an intolerance through a cleanse. And what it does is it cleans your body, cleanses your body, resets it. So that way when you incorporate a food, you bring them back in slowly. You'll be able to tell because you'll get a reaction right away. Easiest way to figure out a food intolerance is consume it on an empty stomach. And then within 15 to 30 minutes, you're going to have a reaction. It'll be either in the form of tingling in the back of your mouth. Uh, your sinuses could, you know, you could start getting uh, plugged sinuses. Your eyes could start to burn an itch. You could get a headache, heartburn, uh, grumbling in the stomach. That is a typical indication of an intolerance or even an allergy. So that's one of the simplest ways. Now, on to his confusion on trying to pick the proper diet or lifestyle in order to figure this out. Well, the easiest way in the beginning is paleo. Paleo is an elimination diet by nature. So you eliminate dairy, 
grains, uh, beans, and also refined sugar. Um, this is the easiest way I've found with clients is to get them on a paleo diet to begin with, and then we can integrate them to primal. Primal is more lenient in some of the diet settings, but um, it's also a lifestyle. So I'm blending the two. I'm always trying to push paleo as a part of primal, and it all kind of blends together with some tweaks. I know it's confusion. There's a lot of idiots out there using all kinds of buzzwords. They don't know what they're talking about, and it's all to sell books and get you on their website. So I'll address that too. But primal is flexible in the sense that dairy and grains can be acceptable in small amounts, not on a regular basis. So dairy has to be raw, raw dairy from organic, grass-fed, free-range cows, and preferably non-homogenized, non-pasteurized. And on the grain side, it's got to be an heirloom grain that is either sprouted or fermented. The thing is, you will learn, as I have learned trying to implement this, if you have problems with these, it doesn't matter what form you get them in usually. You're going to have problems with them anyway. And I'll be honest with you, a great proportion of the American public does. So my attitude is, why fight it? You know it probably is going to give you an issue. Just take it out. Um, but if there are people who can tolerate it, and if you're going to do it, or you're going to do it on occasion, do it right. That's the primal side of it. Now, talking about the Whole30 ketogenic and low-carb, Whole30 is a philosophy that is paleo written by a husband-wife. It is very, 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 very strict. And I have yet to this day to have met anyone who has gone through the Whole30 days. It has things like eliminating – you can't have stevia. You can't have strawberries because they're technically not paleo because they didn't exist during the Paleolithic era. And uh, it just goes into crazy land. And these people contradict themselves all the time because now they're bringing in rice and potatoes and things that are not paleo. So just stay away from that. Now, it's so confusing, so hard. It's worthless. I have not met anyone who really gets much out of it. Um, as far as uh, low-carb and ketogenic, these terms are used intertwined a lot. Um, they're different, though. Um, I try and define them correctly, unlike a lot of people who just don't have a clue. Um, out there who write about it, who are the experts. But low carb is basically getting 50 to 70% of your total calories in fat. It's low carb. So you're taking in low amount of carbohydrates, which usually can be anywhere from 100 to 50 grams or less a day. Usually it's 50 grams or less. Um, ketogenic is getting up to 90% of your calories in the form of fat. Um, they're used to basically kickstart or keep you in a fat burning mode. We are meant as, as, as humans, we are meant to primarily burn fat, but primarily not all the time. And what these supposed health experts who have degrees in English and drama and some other things, um, have no background in health and they're all overweight for the most part. If you go and delve into these crowds that it's not a long-term solution. It's a way to kickstart you into burning fat as your primary energy source. You have about a two to three week window with these diets. And what happens is basically after that time, your body starts to think it's in starvation mode. There's only one real scenario in which you would have that much in the form of ketone bodies, which is a partially burned fat that we use as energy in our cells and our major, major organs. And they actually... Uh, actually will will work more efficiently using ketone bodies. 
but we still need glucose, especially in our red blood cells. We have to have them, uh, have to have glucose. There's different energy systems. So if you need to have a quick burst of energy, well, that's going to be glucose. It's either going to come from breaking down glycogen when cortisol is released and, and, uh, adrenaline, as we've discussed prior, which is a stress response, fight or flight. Well, what happens is if you consistently have ketone bodies in the form of ketosis, which is an overabundance of ketone bodies in the blood, um, which these guys don't understand either. They always say you need to stay in ketosis. You do not want to stay in ketosis long term. It actually has negative health effects um, that your body thinks it's starving because the only way that you would have constant ketosis is if your body is utilizing all of its fat stores, and that would be a reaction to starvation. So what happens? Your metabolism slows down. It starts to downregulate because you're going in starvation mode. So your, your body's trying to hold on and slow everything down until you can get to the next food source. That's how your body works. Now, with that, it's a good tool, like I said before, to jumpstart and get into fat burning mode. But what you have to stop. I actually met a guy at Jack's workshop last year who had been doing, uh, I believe it was the ketogenic diet, not low carb for a year and he'd actually start gaining the weight back and it wasn't working anymore. And what will happen is you'll actually gain more weight because your metabolism keeps slowing and slowing and slowing down. And as you can see, you're eliminating a main macronutrient protein. So now you're not going to have the lean muscle mass, which is essential for a, a higher metabolism and in order to burn fat efficiently. Again, these people don't understand this. And if you look at them, you'll see it. They are not healthy. There's one guy who's the same age as me, he looks 20 years older and he's huge. And yet he's the expert. Go figure. Um, so with that, be careful. And for Tyler, I would just recommend, hey, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to recommend the primal power method. That's why I created it. Um, this is not just a, a plug. But I've dealt with many professionals now who look at my book series and say it's the best thing they have found to start people to get going. It's simple, straightforward, and you can get going without too much gobbledygook science that I have to fill in because of my lack of experience. That's what a lot of these books do. They just jump a bunch of, dump a bunch of science in and then it just confuses you. I teach you the whys, not just the hows, but the why you should be doing it, then the hows. Also, I have a great article on my website called, Do You Want to Be a Fat Burning Machine? Become Ketogenic. It is a great article on the ketogenic diet. Um, goes into a far more, uh, depth than I can here. Well, I hope that helps. And kind of uh, clarifies some of the terminology and hope uh, Tyler can figure it out and get started. Sounds like he's on a great start. It's just fine-tuning. And remember, guys, it takes a long time. This doesn't happen overnight. This is a life journey. So hope that helps again and take care. So I, you know, if you ask uh, someone who has their own method uh, which method you should follow, you're probably going to, in the end, hear their method. They they created it. I agree with Gary on this, though. What attracted me to Gary and his take was if you said to Gary, well, does, uh, does, does the paleo uh, diet by Rob Wolf work? Well, yeah, of course it works. Okay, well, then uh, Lauren Cordain, does his stuff work? Yeah, it works. Okay, well, what about this? Well, that works, too. Well, what about this? Well, that works, too. Here's the deficiencies I see there. But, yeah, this works. I never trust a person, especially in the world of diet and nutrition, who just bashes the shit out of everybody else's program because in the end, all of them work. It's just how do they work, who do they work for, how 
likely is the person going to be to be able to maintain it? How long do they work for? What are the transitions? These are all the things that are important. And the core of what Gary does is paleo diet. And then we kind of branch out from there and fine-tune it for ourselves. And there's no militant Nazi stance on anything in Gary's methods. So that's why I like them. Um, they'll tell you beans, yeah, there's there's anti-nutritional you know, agents in them or whatever. If you want to eat some beans, go ahead. But this is what that means, and this is how you can determine how much you can eat before you start having detrimental effects and when you should and should not do this. And for some people, like, okay, we've learned you shouldn't touch this at all. And for other people, we've learned, like, this doesn't harm you at all. And, and I think that's really needed in this world, and that's why I trust Gary. Um, anyway, next question is for John Pugliano. Um, this is my stance, actually, right now. I've been starting to worry a lot about the market right now. I see, and it's not clear to me like it was back in 2008, where it was just dead clear, because I see tremendous upside in the market remaining right now. I see a lot of pain for people, but a lot of corporate profits coming. A lot of corporate profits coming. Um, but I also see a big bubble. Like There's a ridiculous amount of, of overvaluation on a lot of things right now, as though a lot of the what I see as long-term has been priced into the market. Here in Texas, I see a real estate bubble uh, inflating. If it, is, it isn't when it's going to pop, it's not if it's going to pop, it's when. Um, prices are just getting stupid on some properties. What positions do you feel people should be taking now? I see major correction uh, sometime in the next couple years. What say you, Gary? I'm sorry, what say you, John? As we survey the economy, we see that for the most part, real estate prices have been reinflated back to pre-recession levels, and likewise, all the major stock indexes are currently trading at record highs. All of this, of course, is complements of nearly nine years of artificially suppressed interest rates, of extreme deficit spending by the government, and of course, massive Federal Reserve money printing in the form of quantitative easing. And yet, despite all this easy money, our economy is stuck at about a 2% growth rate. In fact, just this month, for the second time this year, the Federal Reserve has lowered GDP growth estimates, and just recently they've cut it down to 1.8 to 2%. And none of these things are unique to the United States. Across the globe, easy money and deficit spending has produced a world economy that, according to the International Monetary Fund, will only grow this year about 1.8%. So a prudent person would ask themselves, are we at a market top? Can these high real estate prices and lofty stock valuations be justified when there's no growth to support it? Well, despite the fact that the markets are at all-time highs, this prosperity isn't spread evenly. Yes, healthcare stocks have done extremely well this year, and the techies like Apple and Netflix and Facebook, yes, they're flying high. But well over 40% of all stocks are actually trading down for the year. And that includes the very dependable, stodgy dividend-paying companies. ExxonMobil, Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Bank of America. And these are just not Dow stocks. You see problems over on the NASDAQ as well. Intel, Oracle, HP, Symantec. There are a lot of weak spots in the economy. One of the ones that I have my eye on and that I'm most concerned about is the transportation sector. Year-to-date, it's down about 10%. Now, it did have a really good run-up at the end of last year, but even taking that into account, if you look at the transportation sector over the last full 12 months, they've barely had any growth. I believe it was a little more than 1%. 
So even though we hear about all the jobs and all the first-time houses being purchased, you still have to ask yourself, if the transportation companies, the things like the railroads and the trucking companies and the airlines, if they're not growing, then how can the general economy be growing? And it's just not transportation or energy that's sluggish. For the people that thought they were playing it safe and they were investing in conservative things like bond funds, a typical 20-year bond fund this year is down something like 8%. And utilities are even worse. Utilities used to be considered widow and orphan stocks, an investment that would guarantee a consistent safe return. Well, yes, utilities are still paying dividends, but year-to-date their principal is down about 12%. The lack of growth in the United States and the overall global slowdown has really had an impact on commodities. A general basket of commodities is down somewhere around 4 or 5% year-to-date, and in fact, overall commodity prices are actually lower now than they were during the depths of the 2008 recession. So what's an investor to do? Well, an optimist would look at this as a great buying opportunity. That assume that with low commodity prices, that means that material input costs will be favorable for business, and that will spur consumption, and then corporate profits will continue to rise, and that'll be good for Wall Street. So they'd be buyers of both commodities and the S&P 500. On the other hand, a pessimist would look at this and say, well, surely commodity prices are only low because there's insufficient global demand. There's been too much malinvestment and overcapacity, and the commodity prices were just the canary in the coal mine. They're the first thing to drop. Right behind it will be corporate profits, and along with that, stock prices will drop. Well, since I can't see into the future, I have no idea which one of those scenarios is accurate. But I'll tell you this. I believe that both of them are probable. And at this point, there's way too much uncertainty to know whether over the short run this bull market can continue or whether we're due for a significant pullback and correction. We haven't had a drop in the S&P 500 of more than 10% since 2011. That's a long time. One thing is pretty certain. Based on current earnings forecasts, about the best the S&P 500 can do this year is maybe another 3% on the upside. And that'll come with a lot of risk and turbulence and volatility. So for those people that are buying and holding, I think they should be prepared to see a lot of peaks and valleys on Wall Street over the next six months. For me personally, I've taken profits and most of my portfolio is in cash. It's not collecting any interest, but at least it's safe and it's readily accessible and very liquid. So I'm keeping my money in things like money market funds or short-term bond funds, something that would invest in a three-month T-bill. These are cash-equivalent type funds that most people would have access to in their 401k plans at work. I have recently taken a position in the U.S. dollar, and that's something that can be done through an ETF like UUP. I know a lot of listeners are worried about inflation, but the dollar has really been on an uptrend for about the last 12 months. Recently, it's had a little bit of a pullback, but I think that's a good buying opportunity. It's not that I think that our currency is so superior. It's just that for right now, the U.S. economy is like, you know, the best house in a bad neighborhood. For the most part, our Federal Reserve is backing off on money printing. Now, I know they still have a big war chest. They've got something like $4.8 trillion on their balance sheet. They're not planning on unwinding that. They may never unwind that. That money will be available for them as the bonds and securities mature for them to keep intervening in the economy. I expect them to do that. But again, for the most part, they've drastically cut back from the $85 billion that was being pumped into the economy every month. And so at the same time that our Fed's backing off, the central bankers around the world are pumping at historic levels. Europe, China, Japan, their economies are only improving because they're mimicking what we've done over the last five or six years with quantitative easing, and they're doing all they can to deeply discount and devaluate their currencies. 
And they're going to continue to do this. They know that the only way that they can support their economies and their export sector is to keep devaluating their currency. So I see very little downside risk in the U.S. dollar right now. And on the upside, I think conservatively, there's at least 5% there through the end of the year. So if I contrast that with the S&P 500, which may be as 3% upside, and if there's any type of pullback or correction, it could easily slide 10 to 20%. That's why for right now, I'm playing it safe with most of my money in cash and then the other part allocated to directly investing in the U.S. dollar through an exchange-traded fund. I'll keep my eyes open. I'll be watching for opportunities. But if I have to be patient for a few weeks or a few months, I'll do that until I see some market clarity. Because there's no doubt that there's a lot of uncertainty on the horizon. The Federal Reserve at some point will be raising interest rates. There's a good chance that that will be detrimental to Wall Street. Oil prices still have not stabilized. And until they do, that will create a lot of uncertainty and problems for not only the oil producers, but also for the large energy consumers like airlines and trucking companies. Oh, and then, of course, next year's a presidential election. I'm sure that will muddy up the waters. So overall, personally, I'm remaining cautious. I'm optimistic, but I am cautious. Like I said, I'm going to wait on the right opportunity. And so as far as things to watch for, I think investors should keep their eye on commodity prices. That will really be the early warning indicator of any type of future growth. And then from a global perspective, it all comes down to China and India. If they can't grow their economies better than 6%, then this global slowdown is going to continue. There are just no other markets that are big enough or significant enough or have the type of impact that the populations of China and India can make. So watch commodities and then watch growth in China and India. As far as the long-term future, I'm optimistic. I think that there's no doubt that through innovation and software and automation, the technology sector is going to continue to grow. They'll continue to develop new products and services that industry and that people want to consume. And so you'll have to use discretion there. But that's really going to be where the number one opportunities are. And then, of course, with demographics, what they are, the healthcare sector is going to continue to flourish. With the aging population, it just favors all types of healthcare, pharmaceuticals, biotech industry, and that'll continue for, you know, at least two more decades. If you'd like to hear more of my market commentary and my thoughts and opinions on general wealth building principles, then be sure and check out my podcast. It's available at iTunes and directly at the website, wealthsteading.com. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Let me give you the jack version of something said there that wasn't said. It was said by, this is what I'm doing and this is how I see it, without just saying it bluntly, this is how to think about it. There are times when in your investing, you look at the stock market and you're not saying, is it going to collapse or is it not going to collapse by, let's say, the end of this year or the end of a cycle that you're you're measuring as a quarter or whatever or a year, doesn't matter what that cycle is. But what you say to yourself is under the current conditions, what is the maximum potential gain by staying in? Can I see this market putting a 20% gain or this investment giving me a 20% gain by the end of the year? And if you say to yourself, the best this this is going to do is 3%, 5%, something like that. And But yet, this still has a potential to drop by 10, 20, 30%, something like that. So that the, the upside is small. The downside, while not guaranteed, is potentially big. And there's a safer place for your money that gives you at least or more than the, the, the maximum potential upside you can take. Move your money to a safer place. It is that simple. That's, 
there's times when I've told people, like, this is not a good time to be in the market. Well, do you think it's going to crash? It's not that I think it's going to crash. It's that I don't see much upside for the next six months. So since there's not a lot of upside, you're taking a risk for no potential gain. So either go take a conservative approach of just not losing, or a conservative approach of a guaranteed small gain, or a conservative approach with a small gain but the potential for a larger gain and less potential of a downside, it makes sense to do. And it's just not something that your Edward Jones or American Express financial advisor will ever tell you. Because it doesn't match their relationship sales training. That's why John Pugliano is part of this team, because he'll tell you the truth. Um, next up, I'm going to let a guest host introduce our next expert council member. I bring you, and some of you know who this is, and then we'll immediately know what's coming, and some of you won't. But I just wanted to have a little bit of fun on a Friday. So I bring you now guest host for about 30 seconds, Dr. Sheldon Cooper, to introduce our next expert council member. Come on, Stewie. Let's get our prize money. That was fun. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com here with another report from what all is going on here at Wheaton Laboratories in Montana. Uh, first thing to report is that the showers are hot. So our Jean Payne system is working great. Um, uh, we've got a, I think it'll, it'll stay hot through October when we have our Rocket Mass Heater Innovators event. Um, our PDC is going on right now, so it's been really crazy. We've had some really uh, amazing guest speakers so far, including Dave Hunter of crownbees.com. He's the uh, global mason bee expert guy. So uh, uh, he's solving a lot of the big pollination problems, especially in the, the uh, line of fear of colony collapse disorder, which <clears throat> I want to point out, colony collapse disorder is nothing more than uh, bee stress, really. And I could wax on about that for about two hours. <laughs> and we had Jacqueline Freeman here, who uh, is, is my favorite person on honeybees. Uh, uh, she has uh, uh, an approach that I really like. I could probably talk about that for three hours. Um, <clears throat> we got the uh, the pebbles onto the rocket mass heater into the house. That's a pebble-style rocket mass heater. We've got three pebble-style rocket mass heaters out of the ten rocket mass heaters that we have here. Um, and, uh, that's when we were working on this January, but the, you know, due to rain and stuff, the pebbles kept getting wet outside. So we thought, oh, we'll just put those pebbles on when it gets nice and dry. And it has been dry. Uh, June is typically the wettest month of the year where we are. And, um, uh, we planted a whole bunch of seeds at the very beginning of June, depending on that. And, uh, the rains never came. So it is now crazy dry, and it's also getting to be crazy hot here. Um, I'm I'm really getting nervous about uh, uh, forest fires. So I did what any uh, prepper uh, homesteader uh, permie would do. I went and bought a fire truck. <laughs> now, when you take a fire truck and you add in the fact that we've got uh, an excavator, granted, 
it limps a little uh, with one of its tracks being a little sad, but it's an excavator, and I have a dump truck. I think that Wheaton Laboratories has become the envy of every four-year-old boy in the world. Um, let's see. What else we got here? Uh, berm Shed. Our, uh, in three days, we made a lot of amazing progress, and then the PDC started. Um, <laughs> and, and this is something you'll enjoy. Somebody stopped on the road, because we're talking about because we, we, here at Wheaton Laboratories, we have two properties, as you know, Jack, because you've been here. Uh, one is the laboratory where we've got like 300 acres, and then the other is uh, a base camp, which is about 20 acres. Base camp is near the road. Um, the, the laboratory is, is further in. Uh, and, and so uh, at base camp, we were building this berm shed to put tractors in and other equipment, place to put things away. And somebody stopped and said... <laughs> Are you forming a militia? Is that a is that a bomb shelter? <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, I I think I think it's going to be great to have a berm shed just so that we can reduce questions like that about you know fear in general you know whatever it is that you're doing people are going to fear it unless they recognize it uh, so you know since we're going to do a lot of innovation here I think having the berm shed is going to be a smart thing just to reduce the number of people that are like coming to crazy conclusions on whatever they see <laughs> is that a bomb are you guys making a bomb and so um, uh, we've got a, a, a dry stack guy here, and so we've been doing a lot of stuff on dry stack. And I always kind of thought that all the rocks that here at base camp were like great for dry stack, and I learned that no, our rocks here are terrible. They have the right shape and everything, but they're the wrong kind of rock. They're they're a rock that just likes to to crumble easily. So, whereas up at the laboratory, we have amazing deep soils and hardly any rocks. So we're like scrambling to, to find the good rocks and make amazing, uh, dry stack rock things. <clears throat> um, I wanted to just take a quick moment to talk about, uh, uh, compost. And, um, <laughs> and by quick moment, I mean like, I think I've got podcasts already covering my crazy theories on compost that fill about two or three hours. I, and I got, I think about eight hours covering how I, I feel about, uh, 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 humanure stuff and, and how humanure, a lot of people, their ideas and, and, and the Jenkins stuff, <clears throat> um, needs, needs some improvement and the things that, that we've done to make it better. But all right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Compost. Um, two big, two big things about compost. Now, granted, we've got our big compost pile where we're we're heating hot water, and um, and that's kind of like you know I'm I'm brute forcing that uh, so we can have the hot water because I think that the Jean Payne technique is a brilliant technique for heating water. Um, but but setting that aside for a moment, um, generally my theories are to not have compost on a permaculture homestead. Um, the main reason being is that if you've got pigs and chickens, then most of the stuff from the kitchen goes to the pigs and chickens. Uh, and then the next thing is is that if you've got skittable shelters, then you uh, never have to scoop up poop, so you have nothing to go into a compost pile. But the the second part of it is is that. Uh, if you go to uh, compost, you, you'll, you'll come up with like, say, you know, a, a, a thousand pounds of raw materials for your compost, and then you'll end up with uh, uh, 50 pounds of black gold. So 
where did all that other stuff go to? <clears throat> and so the, the answer to that is it went up in the atmosphere. It's, it's dominantly carbon and nitrogen. And uh, carbon and nitrogen are the very things that we need for our soils. So uh, rather than uh, uh, just sending that carbon and nitrogen up into the atmosphere, how about if we do things to try and keep it into our soil? And this is what Ruth Stout did in her writings um, uh, like 80 years ago. And uh, But she had like a thick mulch, and she would just throw her raw materials out there. It would still be an aerobic breakdown, but it would be slower and it would be cooler. And uh, it worked fantastically. You have a lot more carbon and nitrogen in the soil. You don't need to uh, turn your piles and things like that. Um, as I said, I could go on about this branch of thought for hours, but I just wanted to kind of poke this out here because it just seems like in the last week this has come up like 15 times. So I just feel like if I say it, if I just say it somewhere, that it, uh, it'll just be out there and then people can look into it more if they want to. Uh, the last uh, uh, tidbit is that the uh, our solar leviathan, which is uh, uh, 3,000 watts of solar panels mounted on a super sturdy trailer, has now been deployed and is connected to our electric sawmill. And so we got sawmill uh, stuff back in action. That's it. That's the news from Wheaton Laboratories. Talk to you next week, Jack. All right, great stuff from Paul as always. I am I'm very excited to see his project progressing the way that it is and as much success as he's had there. My only lament with Paul Wheaton's project is that he's way up in the middle of nowhere in Montana. That's good because he's left alone. It's bad because he's very far away from me and it's cold there all winter long. It, I wish Paul was closer, but uh maybe one day our friends over at Star 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 Trek will uh will invent actual matter energy transport. Of course that's a throwback to the little segment at the beginning, which is funny in a lot of different ways. Wheaton, Wheaton, Wheaton. Anyway, I hope everybody enjoyed that. I do try to bring some humor to your Fridays. Next question here is actually for expert council member Darby Simpson, back into the world of agriculture. Um, this is from Jacob. His question is, what are your thoughts on Scottish Highland cattle for smaller scale grass-fed meat production? I know nothing at all about Scottish Highland cattle. I am not a cattle expert in any way, but I know nothing about this breed. If you would have asked me if it's a real breed, I would have said, sounds like one. So, Darby, what say you about Scottish Highland cattle for smaller-scale meat production? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Jacob's question about uh, raising some Scottish Highland cattle. Jacob, thanks a bunch for your question on cows. Personally, I'm a firm believer that the long-term most sustainable food source, as well as the most sustainable and profitable farming enterprise that we can undertake, is a 100% grass-fed beef enterprise. Like you, uh, on our farm, we've used our poultry and pork production to fund our cattle enterprise, which long-term is going to become the, the backbone of our income stream as we get older. I would like to uh, kind of start by defining about how many cattle you can raise uh, with your 25 acres that you currently have access to. Um, your production with proper management of your grasses, you could actually be finishing about 10 to 12 head of cattle per year and running a uh, herd of 20 to 24 stocker cattle. Now, notice I didn't say breeding stock, but stocker cattle, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. Uh, in short, I, I don't personally have any experience with Scottish Highland cattle. From what I do know, they can be an option for a smaller grass-based cattle operation, but I tend to see them used more in homesteading circles, and I think there are probably reasons for that. The main question you need to focus on with any breed, and not just Scottish Highland, um, in my opinion, is, you know, can you finish them in about two to two and a half years? 
More specifically, can you finish them before they go through their third winter? Now, here's why that's important. The first winter, they're nursing on their mother, and you really, they really don't cost you anything additional in terms of uh, feed costs. You're, you're always going to be feeding mom, and that's something you have to calculate in. But they don't cost you anything extra. Now, the second winter, they've been weaned, so they're eating hay, unless you've got just a ton of stockpiled forage, so you're going to have to take that into account. Uh, if you don't get them done before that third winter, you're going to have to feed them again and then wait until the late spring or early summer of the following year when they're nearly three years old to flesh them back out on grass and have them market ready. Typically, grass-fed animals stagnate on weight gain and oftentimes lose a little conditioning in the winter. So what we've noticed here is like we've got to you know graze them a good three or four months uh, the following season before they're ready to go to market. Um, and that's true of animals that are going into, you know, being two years old as well. But if you've got an animal that's three years old, it really starts to eat into your pocketbook quite a bit. Um, you'll need to network with some other producers of this breed and join some forums to figure out if that's possible. And when I say finish them, I mean they need to be done. The brisket needs to be filled out. They need to be done putting on frame and just getting fat in the belly. The loin section needs to be robust, as does the rump. So find someone else with this breed that's meeting that criteria in a two to two and a half year time frame and really pick their brain. One word of warning on breeds with any animal. Do not get sucked into a breed due to nostalgia or what wonderful things the, the breed association and registration website has to say about their breed characteristics. Every breed association thinks their cattle uh, or their pigs or their sheep or what have you are the best at everything and everything else is second rate. Ask questions, do research, go and look at herds, and make your own decisions. And remember that the ultimate voice on this, if it's a good breed for you to sell, not raise, but sell, are your customers. My question to you is, have you tasted Scottish Highland meat? What's it like? Do you like it? Have you tried other breeds for comparison? Uh, this is what we're after, the finished product and how it tastes for our customers. What our customers care about is quality, nutrient density, and value for their purchase, not what breed you're raising. Now, we personally went through this exercise ourselves over the past few years and finally settled on low-line Black Angus as our breed of choice to begin breeding on farm. They're about the same size as a Scottish Highland, and they finish around 1,000 pounds. Uh, we found that they really excel on grass, and they can be finished in that two to two and a half year time frame. Uh, they're very efficient in terms of live weight to freezer weight, meaning you don't have a bunch of excess bony structure and frame that's wasted. Uh, our customers really appreciate that since the way we sell bulk beef is based on the live weight. A um, half cow, you know, weighs about 500 pounds, and that fits into most families' needs in terms of a year's supply of beef. But most of all, the flavor uh, of these low-line black Angus is just simply outstanding. I mean, it is really, really good, and it's much better flavor than anything else we've raised. I don't buy into the hype of breed registries. Uh, I've talked about this in the past with pigs and cows both. Uh, but these cows rock in an all-grass system, and they taste great. And really, that's what it's all about. That's what we're after. Uh, and one other thing, from a marketing standpoint, black sells. Buy that. What I mean is when you say you have black Angus cattle for sale, albeit a compact version and the, the low-line genetics in our case, consumers get wide-eyed and excited. The Black Angus Association has done a phenomenal job of marketing and branding its breed, and that plays into our hand quite nicely. Now, one website I read defined the meat of the Scottish Highland as, quote, super lean as it is comparable to elk and deer, end quote. My beef is pretty lean, too, 
but it's not that lane, and my customers don't want it that lane, and I don't want it that lane either. I like to have some fat in my beef, and most consumers do as well. I think that you need to uh, purchase beef from several producers of different breeds you're considering, and then I would suggest you not only serve it to your family and yourself, but to some friends and neighbors as well, and just get their feedback on each breed. Um, the, the definition of how lean that beef is gives me cause for concern about ever purchasing those cattle personally. Um, I, I would love it if Chef Keith Snow could chime in with his thoughts in the comment section today if he has any experience with cooking Scottish Highland cattle or if any other listeners do as well. Uh, the other thing to consider is uh, you know how much your breeding stock will cost. Uh, oftentimes, these small niche breeds are very expensive and hard to come by. Um, that's true of, of not just cattle, but pigs and sheep as well. I did a quick search to see how much they would run, and while a little bit on the high side, they weren't terrible. Uh, but just be careful you don't go broke buying breeding stock or you know have to drive three states away to get them. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of availability, at least near my farm, so something to consider. Um, now... While I can't tell you if Scottish Highland cattle are the right choice for you personally, I want to address a bigger concern. Do you have any experience with cattle? If so, how much experience do you have managing grass in a 100% grass-fed beef operation? If you can answer honestly to yourself and you say none or very little, then for the time being, get purchasing breeding stock out of your head. You need to know how to manage grass first, and you need to know how to work cattle. Once you have those skill sets, in my opinion, then you're ready to purchase breeding stock. I know a lot of guys purchase the breeding stock first, and I think that is the single biggest mistake you can make with cattle, period. Uh, if you don't manage your grass properly, you will not make a profit. And no matter what breed you have, um, you, you know, you, you're just not going to be in a good situation there. Uh, so if you spend all your money uh, you know, on breeding stock and you can't get them fat, you're going to have nothing to sell uh, to generate any more funds to start over with. So my advice is to start with stockers and learn with them. Uh, that's also your best way to turn a profit quickly. Uh, you purchase some 10 to 12-month-old stockers, you fatten them up, and you can turn your money back around in 12 to 16 months. Uh, in time, you can reinvest those profits into your breeding stock. And there's a lot more to the cash flow side that I don't have time to go into today, but you can make money while you're learning if you're smart about it. Now, if after conducting lots of research, you're sold on this breed, they get some stockers of that breed and learn with them. Build a relationship with other breeders, and when you're ready, you'll have some good resources from which to start your own herd. Uh, focus first on learning how to handle cattle, manage your grass, and get your infrastructure in place. It took us over five years before we bought any breeding stock, and we just had our first calves on farm in the last two to three weeks. Now I'm realizing what additional infrastructure I need to install to manage these little guys and their mamas. It's a game changer for certain. So start with stockers first and learn there. That's my advice. Also, if you want to learn what to look for in breeding stock on cattle, um, uh, what I would really suggest you do is read up on a guy named Gerald Fry uh, out of Redbud, Arkansas. I would define Gerald as the master Yoda uh, when it comes to breeding cattle, and I will have Uncle Jack include a link to his website in today's show resources. Um, one thing I will tell you is this. You do not need three bulls. That's a complete waste of money, grass, and resources. Uh, again, I'll refer, refer you to Gerald Fry. Uh, one halfway good bull should be able to take, up, uh, take care of up to 25 or 30 cows. A great bull can serve as 50 to 75 cows. And before you say that you need different bulls in your herd, for genetic diversity, again, I'll refer you to Gerald Fry. Uh, you can always refresh your genetics every few years by trading out bulls if you desire. 
Jacob. I hope this has been helpful. To learn more about me, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com. Uh, lots of free articles out there you can read on all sp- aspects of uh, farming and running a farm business. Uh, if you want, you can sign up for the uh, free email blog newsletter that will alert you to uh, new articles when they're posted. Uh, for those of you who are seeking more in-depth help, uh, I'm also available to do one-on-one consultations that are custom-tailored to your needs. And I would like to mention that if you're a MSB member, I do give you a 10% discount on consultations for supporting the show. Jack, as always, thanks so much. Take care. Yeah, the, the this cattle breed thing and the time to finish makes me think of our experience with American guinea hogs at Perma Ethos. Um, we just killed one at the Perma Ethos uh, Summer Festival. It was some of the best pork I've ever eaten. It was fantastic. Uh, but they take a really long time to finish. And can I say it was better uh, than any other pastured pork I've ever eaten? No. Can I say that it was better maybe than some pastured pork that I've eaten. Yeah. Was it better enough to warrant a high enough price that I can make money selling pastured guinea hogs? No. I mean, in the end, if you're farming for for your own food and you can take longer and you let your animals get enough off the land and you're not trying to get um, what you really could get off your land. For instance, if you're letting the animals take more from the land because you're using less animals in the taking from the land... And you keep the animal around longer before you slaughter it, do you really care? Especially if it's dropping its own calves or piglets or what have you. No. And then you have this kind of unique thing that works for a homestead. And I think that it's a lot of these heritage breeds, that's where they work best. When it comes to something that's marketable and profitable, though, you, you have to, you know, not necessarily stick to like with pigs, pink pigs, or with cattle, like a, uh, you know, like a, a, a production cattle, but what tastes good finishes well in a reasonable time and markets well. And with cattle, it seems like Black Angus does that. And, and you know, I, I have to admit that when I hear that, my ears perk up too. Um, so I'm not saying this breed's not right. I'm just saying that if you want to make money, it might not be right. As for what it tastes like, I didn't even know it existed, so I'd have to try it. Uh, for the fact that it's similar to deer and elk, that's not a problem for me. Uh, if I had a couple thousand acres, I promise you there'd be some big old European red stag running around on there uh, and doing their own thing, and I'd be taking them out whenever I wanted one. So I, I'm Because we talked about game and all, I won't go back into that. Uh, I think a lot of it is a knowledge of how to cook. But now if I'm a farmer rancher and I'm selling to my customer There's enough of an education process to explain why my food costs more than it does at Albertsons or Publix. I don't need to also add in, here's 15 different things you need to know about cooking this so you don't ruin it. So from a standpoint of making money versus a standpoint of homesteading, I think that you have two different worlds there. And you need to be careful when we start moving one into the other. How much land, how much energy, how much money? Uh, These are very important questions. And in the words of Darby Simpson... Um, you know, Excel doesn't lie. And for those of you that are looking to either up your homestead production or get into this profitably, I want to remind you guys that Darby does do consulting. You'll see a link to his website and all other council members in today's show. So uh, check that out. And I think if you want to, if you want to do profit, this is a guy to talk to because he's had to figure out how to make it profitable or sink. Those are his two choices. He decided to leave, leave engineering. Leave a prof- you know, a profession, leave a full-time job, a full-time income, and go into farming. And, you know, years later, he's still doing it. That means he knows how to do it. So take his advice with that knowledge. Last question of the day. If you've been keeping count, that was 12. 
And I said we were missing somebody. That was Tim Glantz. Apparently he had sent his uh, answer over, but one way or another through the interwebs it didn't get here. Maybe the tubes were clogged. Remember that? I don't know. But I did get his uh, question answer in. So here's my question for Tim. Uh, the Army's about to change from the ACU camo pattern. This means it's all going away. This means a shit ton of gear is coming down the pike. This means with that much coming that fast, it's going to be cheap. It's going to be good stuff at a good deal. Except there's a reason they're doing it. It sucks. It is the it is the worst camo pattern ever, Infinity, period, that our military has ever chosen for whatever dumbass reason to use. That's why they finally, oh, we screwed this up. We need to get rid of it. Um Are there ways that we can make use of all this stuff through alterations? I've heard some rumblings about that, but I've never looked into it. But when I look in the future, I see a buttload of cheap gear. Really good quality military gear. Well-built gear, just with a crappy camo pattern. Is there anything we can do about that to make use of this glut of cheap gear that's on the way? Hi, Jack and everybody. This is Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a question about How can we make the best use out of all the new or used digital camo that's going to come out surplus because as of July 1st, the Army begins transitioning away from it? Whenever the Army does a switch like that, they do it over a course of a couple years, but this change will probably happen a lot faster simply because the universal camouflage pattern, that gray-green pixelated pattern you've seen the Army wear for the last several years, is very hated. So unlike when we switch to it from BDUs, guys are going to be in a much bigger hurry to get rid of this gear. And there is going to be, if patterns hold true, a lot of the field gear and the equipment on the market uh, at pretty good price. Problem is, they're switching away from it because the pattern is awful. doesn't blend much of anywhere. So what can you do to make good use of that equipment? There are two courses of action you can do to change the colors on it to make it be a better camouflage pattern. Now, if you don't care about blending in, just use the stuff as it is. If you do want to blend in, if it's clothing, your best bet is to dye it. I've experimented with a lot of stuff, and when you dye uh, the ACUs in the UCP digital pattern, browns don't work very well. But greens do, a darker green or even a pistachio green or some of the other green writ dyes will work. You have to follow the instructions closely. If it says add salt, add salt. If it says hot water, they mean hot water. But you can make it into a pattern that blends pretty good. Now, on the nylon field gear, the packs, the vests, the canteen covers and all that, they can be dyed. However, dyeing it requires very hot water, almost at a boil with the dye. And I don't like to do that because you do structurally damage the nylon. You will reduce the life of it by putting it in that hot water. And you're also going to eliminate most of the water resistance that's made into it. So I would rather spray paint it. The key to spray painting this gear is less is more. Really fine, light coats, just enough to change the tint. You don't have to cover the old colors altogether. You don't cover it so you can't see the pattern. You just put enough to darken it up and change it to the green or the brown that you're going for. It, uh, and when you're doing it, it'll look like you haven't done enough because in progress. Keep a piece that you haven't painted next to it to compare it to so you actually get better perspective. If you don't, you'll end up putting too much on it. 
I sent Jack a video uh, I made a while ago that shows me doing uh, a little bit of paint on both Desert Camouflage and some of the UCP uh, ACU Digital and how the uh, technique is. But And it'll be in the show notes. But basically, you use flat colored, either green or brown or gray spray paint, depending on what you're going for. Hold your can further away from the object you're painting than you normally would for good spray paint because you don't want a 100% thick coat. You want to kind of mist it on there and let it change the tone and do very, very light coats a little bit at a time. Check your work, let it dry, and go back with more. If you do these light coats, it'll go on in a way that it won't flake off or harden up or peel off and, be, uh, and it'll stay flexible with the gear. If you put it too close and you do a really thick coat, then it's not going to be flexible, and eventually as your gear flexes and everything else, you're going to flake off the paint. So if you're interested in doing that, uh, check out the video I sent in to Jack, and it should show a lot, uh, a lot of you the easy way to do it. It doesn't take much paint, but like I said, the big, biggest key is less is more, just enough to change the pattern. Hope this helps some folks out, and hope, hope it helps you take advantage of some great gear. And the other thing I'll add in there is, your gear doesn't all have to match, guys. I get so many people in here that say, well, my vest is, is woodland, so all my pouches have to be woodland. No. You know what? When you get into the woods, nobody's going to be able to tell that you've got a coyote brown pouch on a woodland vest or you've got an OD green pouch on a coyote vest. It's going to it's gonna blend in. As long as you've got good camouflage colors, that's the biggest problem with the, the UCP Digital is it just wasn't a good color. As long as you've got the good colors... So if you've got a, a woodland vest and you get a good deal on a three-color desert camo canteen cover, take a little bit of green paint, put it on there. It'll be more than good enough, and trust me, nobody's going to spot you because you've got that slightly different-looking canteen cover on there. So thanks for the question, and thanks for everything as usual, Jack. Well, that's awesome because that means we can make this stuff look better, work better. I'd like to say a little bit about camouflage here at the end. There's way too much emphasis in the world of camouflage on leaves and grass and patterns that are trying to emulate um, woodland environments. The most amazing thing that you will ever see as a bow hunter is animals moving through the woods that you can barely make out because they have such great adaptive camouflage, including, dun-dun-dun, the white-tailed deer. The white-tailed deer uh, has a color change that it undertakes that, that, that you see throughout the year. In, in the, the winter and fall, they're much more gray, and in the summer, they're much more of a brown to a red-brown. And they just kind of fade in color through the season. And as they come back into their, their spring coats, they put this red-brown color on. And you'd think that just being one color kind of grayish-brown or one color reddish-brown, that they would just stick out. And if they're standing out in the middle of an open field milling around with 20 or 30 of them eating like cattle, they, they kind of sort of do. But a deer in the timber, a deer in the shadows, a deer in the scrubs of Texas... What's amazing, and you know, they, we hunt deer in Texas with feeders, and sometimes I think it's overdone because a feeder goes off and a deer run in. But what you learn when you see that is, okay, here's, like, you're standing there, and it's like there's no trees. It's scrub. It's like you can see for five miles that way, five miles that way, there ain't no deer here. And also these deer just show up out of nowhere. Well, they didn't come from five miles away where you can see to. They came from right over there. Where were they? When... 
you look at camo, what you're looking for is this transition of shadow and light to the point where it kind of fades into the background and doesn't stick out. That's the, the, the point of camo isn't so much to hide, it's not to, to stand out. And then there's also a lot to be said, and this is why ghillie suits work so well. It's not because they look like leaves. It's because they break the outline. When we want to blend in, we want to break up our outline. We don't want to not look like a human being. And there's two, and I talked about this in the bow hunting show recently. There's two different types of camo. There's camo designed to fool the human eye. So if you're in some sort of tactical occupation, or you play paintball or airsoft, this is important. For most of the rest of us, again, this Red Dawn bullshit that people have in their head about what survivalism's all about, not going to happen. What we're trying to hide from generally is ducks or deer or geese or elk or bear. It's much easier to do than you'd think it is. What they see are hands, eyes, and human form. Those are your most important things to conceal. And I've seen instances where simply by getting down on all fours, you can get really close to something with incredible vision, like an antelope, pronghorn antelope. They don't understand what you are, so they're less afraid of you, even when you're in the open. Uh, and especially I've seen hunters be able to just simply get in a group and stay low crouched, so that their form is merged together. They're not seen so, like, it's an, what is that? It's a concern. They're alert. They're paying attention. The world of pronghorn antelope, you know, 200, 300 yards is a close shot, so you're not trying to get that close to them, and it works. So with your camo, understand always adapting the camo to the situation, but I think this is great, especially for you guys that are involved with tactical training and paintball and airsoft. That's fun stuff, and it's good training and good skill development, and this gear is going to be everywhere soon. When you People just don't get how much stuff there is. And Tim's right. This change is going to happen a lot faster because first they've admitted the problem and second it affects so much gear. So ever loving much gear. Every BDU uniform, every piece of web, all of that stuff. We're talking about millions of pieces of gear being dumped on a market and that is going to result in some really good deals. And when it happens, strike Strike, strike fast, okay? This is what happens all the time in mill serve. There's so much of it, everybody sees it as junk, it's stupid, dirt cheap, and it dries up a lot quicker than it's expected, and it's gone, or it's still there, but they have, like, you know, smalls, you know? They have all the molly stuff, and I don't mean the molly gear, I mean for mollies. If you're in the military, you know what I mean, right? So you, you, it doesn't fit right, it's not cut for men, it's too small. They, you know, all the stuff is little or giant. Right, they have it for the the, the seven foot six guy and, and for the four foot six girl, and all the stuff that's like normal average everyday stuff is just dried up and gone, especially with the clothing. You know, I mean, clothing is size specific. So when this stuff hits the market, if you want to add it to your stores, get it when it hits and start buying it and keep buying it until it goes away. Uh, and you might find someday that people are paying a premium for it because. It's going to be a unique thing, so maybe buy a little bit of it, not to alter, because it may be. Because uh, what's going to happen is it's going to get altered. So think about that. Think about that as it pertains to Swedish Mausers. Some unaltered stuff in the future might have some level of historic significance. It'll probably be something that your grandkids capitalize on. But hey, that's not a bad thing either. 
With that, we are done today. We've had all 13 council members in. I like that when we have the full dugout, uh, our 13 uh, council member lineup. And uh, this was a great show. As we head into the weekend, as always, think about why we do what we do here. Survival Podcast really has three main places that we focus on. Preparedness, and then the regenerative, sustainable lifestyle. The concept of living off the land, producing our own food. So we have the emergency preparedness and this concept that we need to be doing and building for ourselves, our communities, each other, our families, living a healthier lifestyle. Um, and then the third component to that is developing freedom and liberty from a standpoint of mental sovereignty, from a standpoint of building our own businesses, managing our money. And this show kind of brought all of that together. And that's what I try to do on these Friday shows is have enough diversity in them that we hit those three major planks of what we're trying to do. Preparedness, high quality of life, and freedom and liberty all brought together. Think about that as you go through this weekend and ask yourself, how can I live a more free life? Start asking yourself often, what is liberty to me? See, this is what makes liberty so precious. I know what liberty is to me. I know what freedom is to me. I understand it intrinsically for myself, yet I cannot define it for you. I absolutely cannot define it for you. Freedom and liberty have to be defined by the individual. That's why we need to not bother other people unless they're harming somebody. There's a Supreme Court decision out today that a lot of conservative people are very upset about, and some of them think Jesus is coming back to kill us all because it happened, or we're going to be sent off to be enslaved by the Babylonians because it happened, because the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was constitutional. Well... I'm sorry, but that's because the Supreme Court made a good decision for a change. It is constitutional. Whether you like it or not, whether you're for it or not, of course it's constitutional, because there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids it. And therefore, equal protection under the law applies. But here's my question for everybody that's so wadded up about it. How does this hurt you? How does this hurt you? And how does that pertain to my question, what is liberty? Liberty is not your freedom and your rights to tell other people how to live. It's your freedom and your rights to live your way. So if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. I'm not going to. And I realize no one's going to make me, so I don't care. Well, somebody might someday, listen, somebody might someday come to you and beat you in the face with a baseball bat. Somebody might someday pull a rabbit out of their ass. Somebody might someday do all kinds of things. I promise you, somebody someday, very soon, will do something that far more affects your life than any of this bullshit. But what matters is do you have your freedom and your liberty to live your life your way? And I think most of us would say, in many ways, yes, and in many ways, no. The productive thing to do, therefore, is identify the places where our individual and community and family liberties are constrained and to make a decisive plan to always increase them a little bit every day through positive action.
So my challenge to you this weekend is ignore the Supa de Mierda de Toro. For those that don't speak Spanish and have never heard this before, the bullshit soup. This is the big steaming bowl of bullshit soup. Now that we've played the flag out for a while, the Confederate flag, now we're going to have the big steaming bowl of gay marriage soup served up, Supa de Mierda de Toro, bullshit soup, all weekend long. Shut it the hell off. Focus on you, your life, your family, your freedom, your liberty, and stop worrying about taking away something from someone else and how to get back what you have coming, which is your freedom, your liberty, your independence. This is what the people that run this country want. They want each group worried about somebody else's freedom instead of focusing on their own because that makes you a good little bitch of a slave. That's what it makes you. If you're worried about this, you're being a good little bitch of a slave, polishing up your chains and making sure they look good when your master comes and tells you what they want you to do next. Break the chains. Shatter them. They are images. They are holograms. They are not real. You have constructed them as control mechanisms. You have fastened them to your neck, your hands, and your feet. And you have made yourself a slave. As long as you're worried about what anybody's doing that doesn't really affect you, you are a slave. The war between the states in this country sadly did not end slavery. It transformed it from something that oppressed a one group of people into something used to oppress the majority of people willingly. I will not wear my chains. I will not be enslaved by the people that think they run this country because I know their control is only an illusion. I challenge you to be the person that's willing to stand at my side and say that too and mean it. To realize there's just a shit ton of things that you have no say-so over. And some of them maybe you should, and some of them maybe that you shouldn't. And this is how you know the difference. The things that you actually can change something about yourself in order to have a say-over, those things you should have a say-over. Those things that you cannot control, you probably shouldn't be controlling. That's why they're outside of your circle of influence, and out there floating around in the nebulous world of your circle of concern. The state has taken upon itself the ability to take those things in your circle of concern and give you the illusion that you have control over them through them. But every single way that they do it involves the threat of violence at the point of a gun. And when you're calling for someone else's liberty to be infringed upon the state, that's what you're asking for. Realize that you're asking for the state to use the threat of violence at the point of a gun to enforce your will on somebody else who you don't even know. And then you wonder why you don't have liberty and freedom. Because all while you're doing that, some other group is doing it. Since the chains of slavery that exist in this country today are illusions... They require a mass delusion to keep in place. This is the mass delusion. Break them and set yourself free by focusing on the things that are impeding you versus the things that impede others. Become free. Demonstrate freedom. Demonstrate liberty. 
And remember, I can't tell you what that is for you. You'll have to discover it for yourself. But it's a journey of discovery worth taking. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.